Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, and I'm recording today on a dark morning out in Reykjavik, Iceland, where we currently have very deep snow, where we have northern lights at night time, where we are in the grip of a deep winter right now. Um, but it is a perfect time of the year for playing games, and I'm catching up with lots of the games that I wanted to play last year but didn't quite get to. I'm indulging myself with a little bit of Pokemon. I'm dipping back into some 2022 favorites, polishing off side quests in Horizon Forbidden West, re-rolling another character on Citizen Sleeper, and even thinking about going back into Elden Ring, um, the game of the year that everyone is still talking about uh, as games of the year season progresses. And I have got a very special episode for you today. It's a Games of the Year episode with Brad Galloway, um, a podcaster who does the So Video Games podcast with Carlos Rodella. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to. I love Brad's taste in games. It's very wide-reaching, very diverse. He always has a whole bunch of games that I've never heard of. He plays an awful lot of games each year. So I'm very happy to share this conversation with you. Uh, we had a two-hour-long chat going through many of Brad's games of the year and mentioning a few of mine as well, um, some honorable mentions, some uh, top 10 picks, and so forth. Um, so happy to share this episode with you. It ran long, so I'm just going to finish off this intro quickly and go straight into it. Um, before we do so, let me just mention, if, if this is your first time listening to Gaming the Wild, this is a patron-supported show. If you do like what you hear today, please do feel free to come and join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild, where you can join the Discord community, where you can get extra bonus episodes made specially for patrons, and lots of other perks too. Um, also really appreciate you sharing this episode with people if you enjoy it, rating it on whatever podcast service you're listening to, and so forth. Um, and you can always come and find me and talk to me about games on Twitter. I'm everywhere as Gaming in the Wild. And if this is your first episode of the podcast, welcome. I'm glad that you found it. And I hope that you enjoy this very special Games of the Year episode with Brad Galloway. All right, so I'm very happy to be joined this week by friend of the show and return guest, Brad Galloway, one of the hosts of the So Video Games podcast and the editor of GameCritics.com. Great to have you back, Brad. Welcome back. And how are you doing? Hey, John, I'm doing really, really well, and I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. And thank you so much for accepting. I always love to talk games with you at this time of the year, especially because something that comes up, I think, during games of the year season is that people start to gravitate towards the same games and a, a kind of a hegemony forms across games criticism, games podcasts, content creators, and so forth. But I always feel that you have um, a, a unique eye that you play all kinds of unusual games. So I'm really looking forward to hear what you bring in today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I really try to get out there and I try to play a lot and I really try to diversify. It helps also that, um, I don't know, some people peg me as a contrarian or whatever. I don't think that's really true. Um, but yeah, I, I I like to give things a shot. I like indies, I like different things. And I like to just to see what's out there. The same five games always kind of bums me out. Um, so I'm glad to bring something new. Hopefully I will bring something new. And just as a really quick metric for anybody listening, I don't know if anybody uh, listening to your show listens to So Video Games, but Carlos and I play a lot of games on our show. We, we average about maybe between six and 10 games a week uh, together collectively, but I've been keeping track for myself. And in an effort to bring everyone the most diverse games, I think in 2022 so far, I believe I've played 
287 games so far. So I'm trying to get out there and see what's there, sampling a little bit of everything. That is a great system. I wish I had kept a uh, count on all of the games that I tried to. I do keep a count on the games that I've finished, and I've finished, I think, 43 this year. Holy smokes, that's a ton, dude. <laughs> it's a fair few. It was more last year, but this year um, there were a couple of long ones in there, you know? I did a full run on Horizon, full run on Cyberpunk, and went deep on Elden Ring too. Yeah. so if I hadn't done those three big open-world bites, it would have been higher. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun show, so video games, because you and Carlos really do try all kinds of games. It's a really diverse range that you try. I absolutely love listening to the show every week and I'm I'm always hearing about, you know, whether it's uh, obscure Souls-like, whether it's a new deck battler or an RPG, you cover new games of all kinds, indie games that I haven't heard of. Um, the way that you two talk about scanning the uh, the PlayStation and Xbox stores and just checking out everything that's new, getting everything that catches your interest. It's not just a place for hype games or consensus games. It's a place for, for all games. And I, I love that about Sovideo Games. Oh, thank you very much. I feel really fortunate uh, because Carlos is a great person to podcast with. I love him. Uh, you know, we were friends even before the show and I, I was on his show when he had a show before our show. And uh, it's great that even though we don't have the same tastes, I mean, I think if you listen to the show, you'll notice that we both have pretty divergent tastes, but he is uh, someone who gives games a shot and he's open to things. And I think that's really the the energy where we connect the most. So even though he may like different things than I do, we always bring something that's kind of like a little bit left of center, which I really appreciate. So I'm glad that uh, you appreciate it too. Yeah. And another thing that, that I, I love about your show is that you two, as you have said, you have you often come down on the different sides of games and you often have contrasting opinions. And the way that you two manage to um, just talk through that and the way that you two manage to navigate that is just really lovely. It's like you're just a pair of lovely people and it's a real pleasure to listen to the show every week and hear you navigate those differences together. Oh, thanks. You know, I attribute that to being really old and our testosterone levels dropping so we no longer feel the need to fight anymore. Uh, we're kind of in our golden years right now, so we're kind of just amicably working things out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sharing the house with a duct tape down the middle. That's exactly so. Getting exactly. through it. Yep. We've got a guest house for you in the back, John. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yeah, um, I've been over in the UK this year and I've just gotten back to Iceland. It was green and pleasant in the UK and it is thigh deep in snow here. I understand that you're out on the West Coast in the US, right? So how is it going out there? How is how is your Christmas been and how is the winter treating you? Yeah, I do live in Seattle on the West Coast of the United States. And so in general, uh, we were well known for like rain and coffee and Frasier, the TV show. Um, but it's not really like that anymore. Um, we are really feeling the effects of global warming and like different weather patterns that have never really been here before. Um, we're having really, really hot summers that we're not prepared for because no one has air conditioning out here. So we're all dying from heat. And this winter was one of the most severe winters we've seen. Um, it was like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then all of a sudden, the most severe ice storm I've ever experienced in my life. We had like an inch and a half or two inches of solid ice on everything. I'm talking about, uh, I couldn't take one step outside my door because I would slip and fall. My, my stairs were slippery. Uh, my concrete was slippery. My dirt was slippery. And uh, I have some chickens. I have a, quite a few chickens in the backyard. And the chickens, if you've never seen chickens slipping and falling on ice, it's kind of hilarious. But I also felt really bad for the ladies because they didn't know what was going on. So... We were actually kind of getting nervous because I was wondering, you know, are we going to be able to get supplies? Are we going to run out of food? What's going on? Are we going to, you know, how are we going to get through this? But luckily um, it shifted and it melted off pretty quickly. But boy, 
it's hard to imagine. It's hard to describe what two inches of ice on literally every outside surface is like, but it's pretty bananas. Do you guys, I, I realize, you know, Iceland is, it's got ice in the name, but do you get like little sheets of ice on everything or is it more snow over there? Oh man. Um, when I got back from the UK, in fact, on the last day in the UK, just walking around on a concrete pavement and down a little dirt track and i was thinking i'm just going to say goodbye to the ground right now because when i get back to iceland it's going to be icy pavements all the way um yeah and the snow compacts as people walk on it and it just turns into icy death sheets so i've got some big grippy snow boots and i'm kind of used to it but i kind of hate it so i feel your pain on that uh you know we are definitely buying those little spiky strap-ons for our shoes next year because the like not even be able to walk on grass the grass was slippery john slippery grass i've never experienced <laughs> that before so yeah we're definitely doing like little i don't know uh carabiners and pythons and all the mountain climbing gear just so i can get to my garbage cans right stay safe exactly. but hey exactly. when it's like when it's weather like this there is not a better time of the year to be a gamer i partially attribute um, the amount of games that i get through with the long winters in iceland so have you at least been able to get stuck into some things even more than usual Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, I was actually really impressed when you said you beat, you know, 43 games or whatever. I used to be known as the guy who finished um, all the games, uh, but that was in my younger days when I had less commitments. And now that I'm so busy, even though I work from home, my wife works from home, we're home 24-7 just because of COVID concerns and stuff still. Um, You know, but I play a lot and I've shifted, right? So I play more. I mean, I play the 200 plus games, 280-ish games. So I'm playing something every day, but getting stuck in like I used to is kind of more rare these days um there have been a few uh and those i think are the real gems for me if you look at my list i'm going to publish my list of what i played this year and you'll see that out of the 280 ish games i only finished like maybe 12 maybe 10 uh and those are the ones that just really brought something new to the table that really caught my attention and those are the ones that i really really enjoy and those are the ones that i think of when i get stuck in so i wish i had more of those but i'm kind of glad that i don't because then it like you said when you get a good game going it kind of kills your productivity especially if you're trying to do weekly show so not a lot of stuck in but a lot of game time but more shallow touch and go game time and not a lot of finishing so but yeah still plenty of gaming though Mm -hmm. yeah and you've been um pretty public in saying that you as a family switched over to Xbox this generation that you've um, been playing mostly on Xbox, you've been loving Game Pass. Has that, has that held for you? I know that you're a big Switch player as well and that you are an all-platforms gamer pretty much, but has Xbox still been the place for you this year? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, we talk about it on uh, my show all the time, but I mean, I think Game Pass is really wonderful. And to be frank, I mean, uh, I signed both my wife and my son up for Game Pass. We all have our own Xboxes because we are a, a hardcore gaming family. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I this sounds, I don't know if this is a bad or good thing, but I feel like since we've gotten Game Pass, my habits haven't changed so much because I'm still the editor and I have to do all these other things game related. But my wife and my son, I think, have each bought maybe like one or two games the entire year just because their needs have been fully met with Game Pass. I mean, something new every week. My son's finding something that he likes. My wife is finding something that she likes. And I know that, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about, oh, there's not a lot of exclusives and, oh, Xbox doesn't have the big games. But I mean... I mean, maybe that's true. I guess if you're a PlayStation player and you like the kind of stuff that uh, the PlayStation marquee brings, go for it. I mean, more power to you. But we're not really that kind of player. And so I feel like everything that we really could have wanted has been brought by Game Pass. So I feel very satisfied with it. And also just the fact that we can jump on and multiplayer whenever we want to. We're all in the same system, same ecosystem. So uh, I've been very, very happy with Xbox this generation, which has not always been the case. I have not always been an Xbox person. Uh, far from it. But this this time around, I feel like they're really still knocking it out of the park. 
Yeah, absolutely agreed. I think every year when I look at my games of the year list, the, the, the long list where I've got 20 games and I'm aiming to whittle it down to 10 and get five really solid ones at the top, it's the, t- the way I tend to do it. And every year it seems like there is more Game Pass in the list. And like scanning my eyes down the long list right now, five of my top 10 are Game Pass games, uh, including uh, three of the t- four of the top five are Game Pass games. Oh, wow. So. Yeah, and there's one. Uh, there's two PlayStation exclusives in here as well. I love my PS5, but I have a little Xbox Series S here, and I'm just powering through the Game Pass games. I think it's partially because, like, I think I probably played more time on the PlayStation 5, which is ironic, but it's because it was 90 hours of Cyberpunk and 90 hours of Horizon, whereas if you're burning through, you know, Immortality in 10 hours, Citizen Sleeper in 8 Norco in 12, Tiny Kin in 6, then you're really just, uh, it's like this endless buffet of amazing indie games that Xbox is throwing our way, even if those big cinematic open worlds, for me, are, are, are living on PlayStation. Xbox has really become the home of indie gaming, and with indie gaming being what gaming in the wild is really mostly about, it's it's a natural fit, if you know what I mean. Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I echo your sentiments perfectly because that's kind of how we are as well and it's how I am personally. You know, I love the fringe games, the interesting games, the the offbeat games, the indie games. And I feel like Game Pass is doing a great job in their curation. There is some big stuff there. Um, and, you know, maybe not enough to satisfy the AAA crowd and, you know, grumble, grumble. But I feel like I'm more than taken care of. And I, I'm so happy to see some of these small games, many of them debuting uh, on Game Pass, which I think is wonderful. I love that all the these these indies are getting all these extra eyeballs that they ordinarily wouldn't have gotten. And for me, I mean, that's great. I love to just dabble a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there. It's pretty rare that I'll spend like 100 hours on some giant thing. It does happen, but it's not it's not my norm. And so with that in mind, I think Game Pass is really perfect for me. And just Xbox in general, I think they've really they've really found um, the rhythm that I like this year and, and this generation. So I'm very happy with it. Yeah. Right, and one of the things that I like most about Games of the Year season is that it's, you know, we we review games all year round. Um, I try to focus on games that I want to recommend on Gaming in the Wild. You guys take, like, this this very broad, sweeping net and just scoop up all of the games, and so it's very very much a mixed bag in terms of recommending things or negatively reviewing things on So Video Games, but I really like that about that show. Um, But at Games of the Year time, it tends to be the time when people gather together all the highlights of their gaming year um, and bring them forward. And I really like that spirit about this time. But something that we did last year that was really funny and I think that a lot of people liked was to also talk about a couple of big disappointments in the year. So I say, before we dive into the uh, the games of the year, love in on our favorites, let's talk through a couple of the ones that we that we wanted to like more that weren't quite what we hoped for and just uh, start off with those. So have you got a couple of those lined up? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I'm going to start off with one that I feel like is probably going to be pretty controversial. Uh, and and to be honest, I had to cut a couple couple more because I don't want to bring any heat to your show. I'm not trying to bring any hate. So uh, <laughs> let me talk about the first one, which I think is probably the one that I think most people will disagree with me on, is Cult of the Lamb. I found it to be very disappointing this year. Um, I had a lot of hopes for it. I love the art style. I think the art is great. I think it's a great premise of of worshiping these these elder gods and trying to bring about this darkness and and having a cult and all the things that happened uh in your home base. I mean, I think I think the blueprint, how it looks on paper is wonderful. But the part that I was disappointed by 
was uh, number one, I didn't think the combat was deep enough uh, with a roguelike. And I play all the roguelikes, like literally all the roguelikes. Uh, it's one of my favorite genres. And so I just didn't feel like it had enough variety. Like the things that changed in uh, run to run wasn't deep enough. It wasn't fresh enough. I kind of felt like I settled into a combat pattern pretty quickly and I wasn't seeing a lot of variation. I wasn't seeing a lot of um, interesting combinations. And really that's like where the, the genre shines best is when you get a new power up with a new weapon in a way that you didn't think and then something wonderful happens or something interesting happens or even something catastrophically funny happens. That's fine too. I just felt like it was all pretty straightforward and I got really bored of the combat um, uh, a lot quicker than I wanted to, certainly far before the end. And I got to say also, it just kind of felt like a grind at some point doing some of the resources for people back at the base. I was like, okay, this is a great idea and I really want to love this, but it's just, just not doing it for me. That was really disappointing. Interesting pick. That one has been lingering around the lower reaches of my own list. It's currently sitting in the honourable mentions. Um, it is a game that I will say I played it at launch. I had been looking forward to it like you um, and was very impressed off the bat with the music, with the cartoony presentation. Um, and I kind of liked the combat. You're right that it's shallow. Um, and there isn't. There are only three weapons that you get right. There's like a heavy weapon, a claw that sucks, and some daggers. <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone hates the claw. Um, but that that mixture of like culty village building and combat in short bursts of combat kind of worked for me. Actually, I found that you know when a game kind of clicks with your brain and you start to feel that addiction. That was one of the games that I played this year. Where, where as soon as I finished work, I would just be like, yay, it's time for Cult of the Lamb, and then sit down and play an hour. And I think I finished it in three or four days. Um, but at the time when I played it at launch, it was absolutely riddled to the core with countless bugs. Um, it crashed, hard crashed constantly. It soft locked me and um, I, had, I lost an entire save. Oh, geez. Um, of about five or six hours in. Um, every time I came into my compound, there were people floating around and doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And I don't mean in a fun cult way, I mean in a completely broken game way. So I think that if Cult of the Lamb had been maybe a little more cooked in the oven before it was released, then my experience of it might have been quite different because I really enjoyed my time with it, but it was very much. Um, it was almost despite the the, uh, the condition that it was in. I really had to struggle through it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't experience the bugs. I do remember you talking about it, and that's really unfortunate. And it's kind of funny. We say this on uh, our show all the time, but, you know, the best time to ever play a game is six months or even a year after it releases. I know that's terrible for sales, and, and there's a whole lot of reasons to not do that. Uh, but honestly, this is exactly that. You know, like, if I, I'm sure that if I came to Call to Lamb today, or if you had played it today, Rather than it drop, you would have you know none of the problems. You'd have better co better balancing, better content. It would just be a better experience all around. And that sounds like you know exactly why you should. Sometimes you should pause on some of these games. Absolutely, and I, I think that the combat, um, whilst simple, when, when I'm thinking back to that game now, it's the first time I've thought about it for a while. But I think the combat for me, it was like a self created challenge where you know you enter a room, you can see five baddies. There's a couple of obstacles in the way. You know what your weapon does. And I think I got into the habit of trying to clear a room in under 10 seconds and without getting hit because it's quite <laughs> snappy. There's a pretty fast dodge roll. Um, and I always went for the daggers, the fast weapons. And so I think I was finding my own fun 
in, in this kind of slightly shallow roguelite dungeon crawler and just trying to really just burn through the rooms at incredibly high speed. And that was how I played Cult of the Lamb. I never went for the heavy weapons and that was quite fun. But I get that compared to like a game like, you know, something at the top of this class, like Hades, that is entirely focused on that stuff. Yeah. Where there's just, you know, tens of weapon combos and something new happens every time. This was a very, it was like a little baby roguelike and a little baby village builder um, in a neat little package, but I, I get what you mean. I mean, it's it's certainly not troubling the top of my list either. <laughs> I appreciate that you found your own custom hard mode, though. That's pretty good. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, let's see. The next one was really oh, this was personally so gutting to me. It was Vampire the Masquerade Swan Song. By any chance, did you give this one a shot this year? I did not, but I have listened to you talking about this series, and I think that you were looking forward to this one quite a lot, right? Yes, I was very excited. Um, I'm not really like a vampire guy or anything. I don't have uh, fake teeth on my dresser drawer or anything like that. I don't, you know, I don't don't like blood very much either. But the Vampire of the Masquerade games recently have been very good. There was a couple of visual novels that came out that were quite good. And this one, while not a visual novel, is kind of like a point and click story based sort of thing. But the thing that really got my attention and what really built up my hopes for this was it was from the same developers as The Council, uh, which came out a couple years ago. Are you familiar with The Council, John? No, I haven't played that one. Oh, The Council is one of my, oh my gosh, so good. It was, uh, just as a real brief recap, it's kind of a murder mystery with the Illuminati based in, um, I don't know, the 1800s, I forget. Um, but it's, it's just a wild, a lot of famous figures show up. You're a detective, you're figuring out what's going on, and then some supernatural stuff happens. And there's a lot of like telltale visual novel style stuff uh, type stuff but also some genuine RPG mechanics thrown into it like it was a wonderful blend I love the cancel so much if anybody hasn't played it listening to the show go back and check it out you can probably get it for a song these days and I think it's well worth uh, well worth the fiver or tenor that it's going to cost you to get into it but anyway those developers hadn't done anything since the council, and I was really, really eager to see what they were going to be up to. And their next game was this. They they got the license, or somehow it hooked up with the uh, White Wolf people who own the Vampire the Masquerade. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. Uh, I love their last game, and I think this is a great IP match for them. Unfortunately, I don't know what happened. It kind of went sideways. They sort of started out being like the council in some ways, which would have been fine for me because it's been a couple of years since I played it. Uh, but they just really leaned into these really obtuse puzzles. And some of the sections just went on interminably. Like it just, they were so long and just so many items to find. And I'm not sure where they lost the plot, but it wasn't as punchy. It wasn't as clever. And I ended up not even finishing it, which was really a shock to me because I thought I was going to eat this one up. And it just was, it just didn't happen. It just didn't come together. And I really, really expected more. So that was a very bitter disappointment. Yeah, sorry to hear that because I know that you were pretty stoked about this one. I remember you being pretty hot on it as it was coming out. So it's a shame that it didn't hit this time. Well, before we get into the the good stuff this year, I've got I've got a couple on my list here of games that I was really looking forward to that didn't quite do it for me. A couple of them were games that I didn't really know about before they landed, so I don't really feel like they were huge disappointments, if you know what I mean. It's not like I was waiting years for these games, but there were a couple that I had super high hopes for, uh, partially because of how they looked, partially because of maybe the developer I like. Uh, and I'm going to rattle through them quickly as well and see if you've played them too. Yeah. Um, but the, f- the first one is a pretty recent game. It came to Game Pass. Um, I was aware of this one. I'd seen some footage of it. It was by uh, one half of Playdead Studios, uh, which obviously carries um, a lot of weight with it because Playdead made uh, Inside and they made Limbo, both of which are pretty good. I mean, Inside is 
a classic. Limbo is a clear forerunner of Inside, but still a good game. And it was Somerville. Did you play this one? Uh, I didn't play it. I downloaded it. Um, full disclosure, I'm not the biggest fan of either Limbo or Inside. I think they both have their points, but I'm not... Uh, they also have problems. I feel like they both have some real problems for me. But Carlos on our show played this, my co-host. And I, I figured if Carlos would like it, I would jump in. And he came back and he absolutely did not like this one. So I bounced. I deleted it without even trying. I think that's the right decision. If you didn't like Inside, then you're going to really not like Somerville. Because <laughs> uh, Inside at least is pretty slick. You know, you always know what you're supposed to do in Inside pretty much. There are puzzles. But um, the thing that Inside has in its favor, I think, is that it's left to right scrolling. You'll sometimes reach a dead end. But if you read the environment well, and the environment is very readable, then you can get through it. You can see the handle you're supposed to pull. You can see that the lift goes up and down. The game reads well. Um, and sure, it's you know, it's not to everyone's taste, but at least it does that well. I think Somerville fell on that basic hurdle, that basic first hurdle. So it's similarly side-scrolling. You'll occasionally come to a handle puzzle, but the environment does not read well. So several times, even in the first hour of the game, after which I quit, I would come to a place, see that there were some elements there. My eyes were scanning over them. I could kind of recognize that something was supposed to happen. But it wasn't a hard puzzle, but it was just hard to read um, the environment, if you know what I mean. So I think that Somerville, um, I, I have mentioned it on the podcast before, but Playdead was two people. There was an artistic director and a kind of a studio head. Somerville was made by the studio head and the artistic director has gone elsewhere and is doing something else. And I think that that kind of showed here. Who had the talent in that little relationship, huh? Exactly. I've been skirting around saying it that clearly, but that's exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> he sunk my battleship. Uh, the second one that I got here is um, a game that I think was actually pretty divisive. Half the people, actually, I would say one in 10 people seem to think that this is a masterpiece. Nine out of 10 seem to have varying degrees of problem with it. And it was uh, Scorn. And oh, did you man. try out Scorn this year? Yes, I, I did play. I put a pretty fair amount of of time and a scorn and you can put me down as the person who thought it was a misfire disaster i didn't i did not think it was a masterpiece mm -hmm. um and this is one of those ones where i'm a little like the last one on my list is in this category too but it's you know when you see someone that has really clicked with a game and they are even if it is a somewhat strange game they've somehow managed to kind of mind meld with it work their way through it and find this reward and are almost evangelizing about it afterwards and saying this game really took me on a journey you know and the one in ten seemed to be that kind of response to it but to me this was absolutely beautiful um i didn't i, I did that first section that everyone has tried you know where you kind of find a little crunched up guy in a little capsule yeah yeah you have to kind of shuffle him around the environment and so forth um but this this it was so hard to play honestly it was the walking speed was so slow. Um, you trudge from place to place, pulling levers, not really knowing what they do. You have to kind of figure out the sequence. And I think that the game maybe doesn't want you to figure it out um, in a way. It's it's almost intentionally obtuse in a, in a way that I think perhaps a certain kind of mind latches onto because they're like, wow, this game isn't spoon-feeding me at all. I've got to do all the work here, if you know what I mean. Um, but for me personally... I, I bounced on it so hard. I was like, this game isn't... I don't need my hand to be held, but I, I need to have a basic idea of what I'm doing. Yeah. And even if it looks beautiful, I'm just not getting that. You know what I mean? 
Oh, exactly. I had the same experience. I mean, I, I put a pretty good amount of time. I think I probably got halfway before I realized, okay, this isn't getting any different and I don't like what it's doing. I, I, I played that first section, and for people that don't know, the first section is basically like this giant multi-room puzzle with many levers, many pieces to it. It's like, ultimately, it's like eight or nine steps, and it's the very first puzzle in the game, and they don't even tell you it's a puzzle. Uh, or you just have to figure out, like, I can't progress, therefore, it must be a puzzle. It's a really strange way of opening a game for a game that doesn't do anything to acclimate the player. Uh, and I... I, I was in at first because I, I am kind of a fan of the Giger-esque uh, aesthetic and, you know, the visual uh, style was so strong and we've been seeing seeing trailers for it forever, it feels like. So I, I thought it was going to be a different kind of experience. I wasn't expecting it to be so obtuse puzzle heavy. And I'm with you. Like, I just felt like it, it was kind of pushing me away. I felt like it didn't really want me to be there. And I don't have time for games like that these days. I just really don't. Um, I've been around for a long time. I've played a lot of games. And at this point... If some game comes to me with the prospect of you need to work hard if you want to get into this game because I made it and that's what I want to do to you as a player, then I'm like, no, thank you. I've got like 85 other games lined up that want me to play them. And, you know, maybe that sounds kind of petulant or childish or whatever, but I just don't have the time. I don't have the patience for it. So I, I got further than I wanted to, further than I should, got past that first section and I felt like, okay, good. I did this thing and now we're going to see what this game's really got. And then it's just smashing the face with more obtuse puzzles. And mm -hmm. if you took away the aesthetic, I really don't think you'd have much there, honestly. Yeah, exactly the same. I am I am slightly jealous of people that did manage to, to click with Scorn because it does seem like there is something there if you really drill down into it, but it just makes it so hard to do that. And the, la the last game that I've got here, I don't know how you're going to feel about this one. I can't remember if you've talked about this one yourself uh -oh. Uh -oh. on so video games. Yeah, it's, it's a... I think this is a controversial one. People who listen to the show every week will know what I'm going to say already. <laughs> it is um, the cute fox game that everyone loves, the, one of the indie darlings of the year. Uh, it's Tunic. Oh, yeah, whatever. You can bash on that one. I didn't care for it. No holds barred, John. Go for it. <laughs> I'm just going to do it. People have heard me talk about this a lot already, um, but... This was a game that I, I wanted to love and that I was genuinely looking forward to at the start of the year when I actually wrote out my games I'm looking forward to this year um, and sketched out the ones that I was definitely going to cover and uh, wrote down the release dates for. Tunic was high on that list. It is the isometric Zelda-like um, with a little green Link costume-wearing fox who runs around with a little sword and shield. It looks, it looks very Zelda-inspired. And this game had been long in development, but it turned out to be pretty soulsy. Um, it turned out that the combat was pretty intense, but the controls were quite loose in a way that didn't work for me. But people that love this game really, really love this game. It's been mentioned so often in Games of the Year lists. It's it's one of those ones, like Scorn, it's like a certain kind of person loves this game. And it's not that I think that the game is objectively bad. I'm just jealous that I myself could not have that experience with it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I did not put much time into this one, but this is the one that has you working through like the the clues, right? There's all sorts of clues and the instruction book that you have to kind of piece together, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. there's this nostalgic thing going that I think definitely clicks for some people. Like you're finding the pages of a manual, and when you look at the pages, as you assemble them slowly from finding them in the world, you're discovering little mechanical clues. You're discovering button prompts that were hiding in plain sight. Um, and the mystery apparently goes quite deep in quite a satisfying way. So it definitely seems juicy. It definitely seems enticing. But something, I, th I don't think anyone was really expecting this game to be hard. Um, and that's basically what threw me. 
it was just hard. And I was thinking, I was expecting like a fun Zelda time with this little jelly bean fox, if you know what I mean. I <laughs> yeah. ended up getting my ass kicked a hundred times and just, it wasn't quite clicking. This this strange mismatch of um, unwanted souls influence and cute Zelda uh, nostalgia didn't happen for me. Yeah, it looks very cute. And I can absolutely see why you think it would be nicer to you than it is. I think the appearances are definitely deceiving in this case. As for me, I mean, I'm no stranger to hard games and and that's not really a problem. But for me, I get, I'm just not that kind of person who likes to unravel secrets. I don't like to keep a notebook beside me when I play a game. I don't like to put puzzle pieces together. I don't want to go to a wiki or talk to people online to figure out who's got what piece of the puzzle. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if, if you'd like it, great. I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, trash talking that at all. But for me personally, that's not something that I enjoy. And Tunic really leaned into that a lot. And I just find that really, oh, it's really annoying. Kind of reminded me of like Fez in a way or something like that, where you have to like <laughs> yep. really like work hard to figure out what's even going on. And I just, I, that's just not me. And and if, if it's you listener, that's great. I hope you had a great time with it. But for me, I was, I noped out of this pretty quickly. Yeah, same. And I think after ragging on uh, Tunic throughout several games of the year episodes so far, I just want to give a quick apology <laughs> to one patron of the show, Narita Boy, who is on the Discord and absolutely loves this game and is just probably sitting at home listening to me ragging on it again. I'm done now. That's that's <laughs> that's the end of me ragging on Tunic. And it is the end of this section of us ragging on games. Um, so let's move on. And we've got your games of the year cut into three sections here. We're going to start off with five honourable mentions. We're going to move on to um, numbers 10 through 5, and then in no particular order, have like a little top bracket. And if people want to find out how that shakes out, they should listen to your So Video Games, Games of the Year episode that will be up in a week or so, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to consider. I haven't really locked in that final... That final order, and who knows, I may completely change uh, by the time that we do record so video games. So these are this is where I'm at right now. This is like a snapshot of today. Uh, but do please come to so video games if you want my final final answer. Right. So let's start off with your honorable mentions. What are the games that you uh, that you played this year that didn't quite scrape into that top bracket, but but that hit the spot in, in a certain way? Oh, man, it was tough. It's really tough. And before I give the honorable mentions, uh, I do want to say that there's at least 14 or 15 other games that I just didn't have time for, uh, whether it was because I had a review responsibility at Game Critics or I had a a show responsibility for Soviet games or just I wasn't in the mood or something. But I mean, anything that I mentioned here could have easily been replaced by 14 or 15 other games that I still have on my backlog that I still plan to get to. And I'm really hoping that once we wrap up all of the Q4 game of the year stuff and things kind of get quiet for a little while, hopefully, that I'll, I'll go through some of those and, uh, and, and check those out. So there was a lot I still wanted to get to. And if you don't hear your favorite or you're scratching your head about how come I didn't play this game, I probably wanted to. I probably just didn't have the time for it. But what I did play... Uh, in no particular order, these are my honorable mentions. Number one, uh, Ravenous Devils. I had the best time with this game, and I don't. I have not met anyone else who played it. Do you even know what this is, John? No, I didn't, and I'm overjoyed. This is my favorite part of Goatee Time, so please tell me, <laughs> what is Ravenous Devils? Ravenous Devils was... I don't even know how to even describe it. It's kind of like a... So, basically, you are reenacting Sweeney Todd. Uh, you know, the, the demon barber of Fleet Street, the person who killed his customers and made pies out of them. It's a cannibalism game. Uh, but it's also a 2D 
uh, Ant Farm View Restaurant Management Sim, where you, you're using human people <laughs> as your fodder to make your pies. It's you and your wife, and you have to split up between the multi-level floors of your establishment. There's a tailor shop, there is the, the restaurant level, there's a secret level, and then there is the butcher level, which is exactly what you think it would be. And so customers would come in, you'd have to grab the customers when you get a quiet moment. Uh, you have some recipes, you'd have to grow some ingredients and like make tasty pies. You gotta make enough money to run the restaurant. And then there's also a story about a serial killer in London happening in the background. That is not you. It's like a third serial killer happening. Uh, it's rough, it's rough, and there's definitely some problems. Uh, it's, I'm not gonna say it's a perfect game, and that's probably why it's not in my top 10. But gosh darn it, I loved this game. I had the best time with it, it was so fun. Um, just killing the people and making the pies and running the store and all the weird things that happened and it was just so bold and crazy and audacious. I, I had the best time with it and I think I bought it for like, I wanna say like five bucks or something. It was so cheap. Um, if you love crazy whack games, I, this one gets a really good recommendation from me. So I'm trying to picture what it is in my head and right now I have a combination of a game like Moonlighter and something like Death Trash. So I'm seeing like fleshy death rooms and like a cute shopkeeping. Is it is it like that? Is it resource management? And then is there an action element to it? It is, a, you are so close. There is uh, resource management and there's also like the cute little shop. Um, there's not an action because how you kill the people is they come into your tailor shop. You just wait for a quiet moment when no one's looking and you just push a button and you dispatch them pretty easily. So there's no like combat or anything like that. But yeah, other, otherwise, it's definitely like that kind of a manage the shop, manage your food. Do you have enough uh, ingredients? Do you have enough food to serve the people coming in? And the people will get like mad, you know, it's kind of like one of those um, cook, serve delicious type things where someone will sh come in, give you an order, and then you gotta be like, oh, do I have enough human sausage for this order? No, I'm out of sausage. Oh and then God. they leave mad, you know, it's, oh, it's just a really fun game if you don't mind the dark subject matter. Um, I'm trying to picture it in my head. Just final question on this one is, is if there was a scale of zero to 10 and zero is cute moonlighter and 10 is like uh, absolute blood fest, where does this fall down? If is, is this like a cute to blood fest scale? Oh, it's probably like an eight in the blood fest scale. It's pretty dark. It's pretty graphic. There's a couple animations. Um, when you get into the slaughter room, you can unlock different types of slaughtering so you can get different cuts of meat. And when you get to the steak table, oh man, that took me by surprise with how gory it was. My whole family kind of recoiled. And in fact, I regret showing it to my son, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely dark. It's definitely gory. If you've got a weak stomach or you can't stand the idea of chopping up other people, don't, uh, don't check this one out then. Well, I don't know what it says about me, but this game is going onto my list of things to play. So thank you. Ravenous Devils, good recommendation. Oh, What's man. the next honorable mention? Next one is Rogue Lords. Uh, like I said earlier, I play every roguelike. And this is a turn-based deck-building roguelike. And you have a cast of famous monsters to choose from. There is like the Frankenstein's monster with Dr. Frankenstein. They're a team. There's like a vampire. There is, I believe, a siren. There's... um. All sorts of different, like, classic monsters, like, uh, all sorts of stuff. Mummy, I think. There's, like, a voodoo person. And you, they all have different types of powers that you would associate with the kind of monster that they are. And you have to go through the world in a very um, Slay the Spire-esque sort of progression. Ultimately, you want to reclaim these artifacts and bring Satan back to the world. I'm seeing a theme here. I like to play some of the darker games, I guess. <laughs> And it was just, it was great. I mean, it was very much like Slay the Spire, but different enough to keep me interested. 
I loved the implementation of the monsters and how they all came together, finding different synergies. Um, you'd have three monsters at a time. And so trying to find a, the best team that would work together, uh, you know, like maybe the harpy would be a good healer, but maybe not so on attack. And then you'd have like uh, this ghost lady who had a really strong attack, but was really weak. So she needed to be healed, you know, finding synergies like that. Also, each character had a couple different ways you could build them. So it was also like a character building roguelike in addition to a deck builder. And on top of that, there were some visual novel elements. We had some choices to make and uh, different little uh, uh, events that would pop up, like dealing with the population of the towns that you'd find and uh, great progression, too. I really liked this one a lot. I think it had great visuals. Uh, great mechanics, great style. If you want something that is kind of Slay the Spire-like, but you've already, you know, rinsed Slay the Spire uh, and you just don't want to go back to that, this is a really great alternative. I really like what they're doing a lot and I had a wonderful time with this one. Right, and I just Googled it while you were talking about it because it sounds great. And I will note that if anyone's listening to this before January the 5th, it's currently half off on Steam. Oh man, grab that. It is definitely worth it. If you like anything, anything remotely like Slay the Spire, it's, it's just like a must-buy. Okay, you're you're um you're not helping my, my backlog here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me move on then before I before I sell you more, or maybe I will sell you on this one. Uh, this is one that we talked about on So Video Games a lot, and we always struggled with the name. I think it's called Ano Mut. Oh man, I can't get it. Sorry, Mutation M. Mutation M. Right? Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's I do. Oh, a terrible title because it doesn't mean anything off the top of your head, and it's really hard to pronounce. Ano Mutation M. I think. Um, and it's weird because that title to me doesn't bring any kind of image to mind at all, but this game was really vibrant, really full of electricity and energy and style, and I just wish they titled it something else because it would have been a much easier sell. It's a kind of a 2.5D action RPG with real heavy anime stylings. Um, I don't usually go in for anime type stuff, but this one really clicked. Like, a lot of the sprite work was really brilliant. Um, I think that the pace of the gameplay was really good. The, the 2D action felt really good. It was funny. Um, it had a lot of surprises that I didn't expect, and it was a much bigger game than I thought. Uh, Carlos and I both really love this one a lot, and I, I don't think a lot of people played it, which, I mean, for obvious reasons, it doesn't really stick out. When you look at it on the PSN store, the Xbox store, it doesn't really sell itself on what it's like, and I think that's a shame because this was one of my biggest surprises all year. Like We were just constantly shocked at how good it was. I believe it comes from a, uh, a Chinese developer. I'm not familiar with their other work. But boy, they they have their pulse on something fantastic. If they keep going like they're going, they're going to definitely be a studio to watch, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking at some screenshots of this one now, um, it looks a little like... You know, Signalis is like this anime sci-fi. It's, got, it's like that if it was like 30% more anime <laughs> and 30% less serious but I'm trying to figure out what this one is from the screenshots is it is it and it's a 2.5d action game right yeah primarily. but it's also an open world which is really weird like there's like mm -hmm. these clusters of world where we can explore the town talk to people uh, go between locations but then when you get into like a combat zone it is like a 2d kind of platformer actiony lots of combos lots of fast dodging uh, countering. Uh, you really have to like upgrade, get different weapons. And so they really lean into the combat. They don't shy away from the combat at all. And it's very satisfying combat with lots of ways to personalize your character. But there's also this whole side, like RPG, talking to people, quest stuff, where it's just a good balance. They really find a good balance between the elements. And I think it all works well. And it just looks dynamite. You cannot tell 
how great this game looks just from screenshots. And you have to like go watch a video because once you see it in motion, you're like, oh, I didn't realize it looked like that because it looks just amazing in motion. It's so good. Right. That's another one. That's uh, three strikes and <laughs> uh, goatee episodes with Brad is like a little backlog extension here and they, they float to the top quickly. I'm going to I'm gonna check this one out. All right. Check that one out. Let me give you another one then. This one is really, really strange, but I loved it a lot. It's called Like No Other, The Legend of the Twin Books. Uh, this is a point and click, but a reinterpretation of the formula. And it was genius it was so genius i believe this comes from a south american developer i forget which country but uh they so they take your traditional point and click formula of cursor on the screen moving a character around you kind of know where that's going but they really flip it on its head and they modernize it and revitalize it in a way that i thought was just fantastic it's set in a post-apocalyptic world but they don't really explain what's going on like you see ruined buildings but it's not like zombies or monsters or anything it just seems like there's some kind of devastation and the game begins with this guy looking for this book and so he comes to town and it's an open world it's an open world point and click which i don't think i've ever seen before not in the way that this is i'm not talking about a series of one room locations or something i'm talking about you can wander around this world there's lots of buildings um it's a small scale so we're not talking a huge world but the ability to have a point and click game where you're you are checking out whatever you want to check out in an open world sense. It blew my mind. I have never played anything like that before. It really looked at this genre in a brand new way. Um, you could go inside the buildings. And then once you got in there, all the puzzles were really logical. There was no moon logic stuff where you're getting glue and cat hair to make a mustache or anything. That nonsense. Like it's all about, you need to find a key logically. Where would that key be? And then you, you know, use your real world sense of things. And then it's probably exactly where you think it is. I love that. Or, you know, most of the solutions just really came to me pretty quickly uh, because it, was, it wasn't it was silly. It wasn't the, the weird jump through the hoops logic stuff, which I hate. Uh, so I love that part. There's a couple other locations you go to. And just the way that you progress through the game was just so brilliant. I love how they did this game uh, mechanically. Um, the one downside, and unfortunately it was a large one, uh, was that they didn't have too much of a story. This game was crying out for more script, uh, more jokes, more story. There's um, a premise... And you can play it successfully and feel very satisfied with it. But they didn't really explain the character who I thought was great. I thought he was a very cool looking character. They didn't explain the world. They didn't explain why you wanted the books very much, which I felt like was a problem. And maybe that's because, um, I don't know if English was not their first language. And so they don't want to spend the time on a script or something. Uh, but it was a bummer. And especially the point and click genre is, is really known for having a lot of dialogue, a lot of characters, a lot of jokes. Uh, if they had done that, I mean, this would absolutely have been easily on my top 10. Um, but even without a story, I I really recommend anybody interested in the point-and-click genre and, and a modern revisit of that genre should check this out. This is, I feel like, the future of the genre. This is something pretty special. Right, and looking at the visual style, it looks hand-drawn as well. It, it reminds me of Minute of Islands. And another game that I don't know if, if you've played this one. It was a game that was recommended to me from Discord. It was um, like a game that looks like this, kind of isometric, hand-drawn beautiful, smooth animations uh, set in the Arctic. And this one had weird video interludes, the one that I'm thinking of. I don't suppose you know what I mean, do you? I do know what you mean, and I did play that one, yes. I cannot tell you what it is, but I know exactly <laughs> what you Circle? South of the Circle? Is that what it's called? Hmm, maybe. Something like if, that. If I, if I think of it, I'm going to come back and in, insert this one into the episode or leave it in the show notes. But it's a lovely visual style. It's lovely to see... It's lovely to see such a... I, I love hand-drawn games with really smooth animation like this. Um, and I also... You know, I'm kind of 
nostalgically fond of the point-and-click genre, um, and we all know the excesses of it, and we all know the pixel hunting was... Pixel hunting and moon logic were kind of the death knells of this genre. Yeah, yeah. And so it's nice that people are kind of keeping that flame flickering. Oh, man. I, I love a good modern point-and-click. I can't stand the old style, and I, I don't feel like there's a lot for me to go back to. But when people take that format and just really cut away the cruft and really get to the heart of the matter, get to the things that work and really update it, I think those games are so fun. Um, so I think this is a great one. Yes, absolutely. And it does have the great look. It reminds me of like Where's Waldo a little bit or like uh, Minute of Violence is a good call. The, the visual style is great, but these developers are really onto something here. Um, my last uh, my last pick for the honorable mentions was Yars Recharged. Did you uh, ever play Yars Revenge back in the day, John? You old enough to have played that one on the Atari? Uh, no, I'm not. And you've got a clean sweep of honorable mentions that I haven't heard of. <laughs> All right. <laughs> ah, yes. High-fiving myself. I feel like I got a victory here. Uh, so Yars Revenge was an Atari 2600 game way back in the day uh, where you played a... I want to say maybe you were a mosquito, maybe you were like a wasp or something. Maybe I feel like mosquito probably. And you were flying around uh, trying to get through a force field to ultimately blow up a base or a, some kind of a stronghold of your enemy. Really abstract. And, you know, Atari graphics were pretty terrible back in the day. But the developers have taken that same concept of you being a flying bug and trying to breach these strongholds and just totally updated it. It reminds me a little bit of something like um, Geometry Wars or something really like bright and neon, clean lines, very abstractized uh, and really arcadey. So you fly this bug around, you have some power-ups, you've got a, a health system and you go through these levels where there's all these just abstract uh, barriers you got to get through. Sometimes they're like circle shaped, sometimes they're spinning around, sometimes you know, there's blocks and you just have to take your bug and just try these different approaches of how you, you chew through or shoot through these defenses to get to the enemy heart and destroy it. Um, very fast, very skill-based, very score-based, very very quick reflex sort of a game, arcadey sort of a game. I don't go in for arcade stuff that often, but this one I think is excellent all on its own, and it was doubly good because I am old enough to have remembered the original Yars Revenge, and I think flying a robotic mosquito is just like the best thing. So anybody who wants to throw more robot mosquito games at me, please do, get at me. Uh, but this one I think for arcade fans, score fans, Twitch fans, or anybody that remembers the original game. This is an amazing update. Great work here. Right. And I think that your little uh, honorable mentions there is adding a lot of games to a lot of people's backlogs. Really happy to have that. I'm looking at my own honorable mentions for the year here, and I think that it's much more normcore than your selection. <laughs> normcore. <laughs> <But> there, <laughs> there is one that I want to pull out here and just see if you have heard of it. Um, it's a game called Paradise Marsh that came to me via a press email, and I didn't know about this one. Have you have you heard of that one? Have you played it? I have heard of it, but if memory serves, is it only PC? I think maybe that's why I skipped over it. I can't recall. I don't know if it's on other platforms, but I did see it. I didn't have time for it this year, no. Right, so that's the one that I would like to bring up. It's I think it's the most... Um, interesting, if you like, of of the list that I've got here, but it is on Xbox. I played it on Xbox. Oh, excellent! Um, it's okay, a shame a it didn't come onto Game Pass because it would have been a really great Game Pass game. Um, but Paradise Marsh is—it's a really strange one. Um, it reminds me most of Proteus, I think. I do um, know Proteus. Yes. So it's that—it's a game that drops you in the middle of a, a generative three um, D landscape it's a swamp it's the paradise marsh and as you walk around this landscape in this game you you get a couple verbs you get you get a net you can swipe you can catch bugs you can catch animals you can catch frogs 
Um, it looks, it's got like a pixely skin on it. So whilst you're walking through a 3D world, um, you are also seeing a lot of wildlife um, and it has biomes. Um, I don't want to spoil too much about it because I think coming to this game fresh um, was a big part of my enjoyment of it. Um, but there is like a nice, um, there's a nice little generative um, looping aspect to the to the wilderness that you walk through in this game and there is also a really nice progression and it's quite a short game this is one of those rare games where you sit down at the at the console you sit down at the screen and you think i'll just try this one out and then before you know it three hours have passed and you're looking at credits hmm. so it was a sing it was a single sitting game for me um and there is the interesting thing about the progression here is that you have to catch insects and as you catch numbers of them uh, the progression occurs. So, like, you catch three dragonflies, you catch five dragonflies, and then story elements start to unfold around that. But maybe the most fun thing about it is that there is an aspect of this one where, as you catch things, you cast them into the skies. There is a, a little premise for this. This is not a spoiler. So, at the start of the game, the skies have become empty, and there are no stars up there. And as you start to hook together your little collection of insects and add them to your little book, add them to your little journal, when you hit the targets, um, something happens with, with them casting up into the skies again. And there is a very philosophical um, aspect to this game where you end up kind of talking to the sky. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's something that I've ever done in a game before, uh, speaking to the stars and having these like cute conversations. Um that, that have a, a kind of a wide-ranging philosophical angle to them, but they're all quite short. You're reading tweet-length bunch of text. It's not Disco Elysium. You're not reading walls of text. Um, and the music in this one is also really gorgeous. It's a generative soundtrack as well. So the, the music changes based on biomes, based on time of the day. There is a day-night cycle. Um, Proteus, obviously, is an old game which has this pixely look to it. And the soundtrack is a little like that too. So it has this phasing soundtrack that seems to respond to what you're doing. And I would say this one was the the weirdest of my little mentions here. And it's a game that took me by surprise for sure. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't... I don't know where this would fit into your taste, Brad, but Paradise Marsh for me was like a really pleasant little bite-sized like indie game that I found this year. Excellent. Yeah, I looked at a couple screenshots and I didn't have time, like I said, but this uh, is intriguing me a little bit. Uh, I may have put a bunch of stuff on your backlog and I think you're kind of returning the favor. I'm going to write this down and I'll check it out. And especially three hours. I mean, that sounds wonderful to me. I love little like order of games where you get in, you get a good taste of something, and you get out before you get bored. Uh, those are probably my favorite. So this sounds right up my alley. Right. And I mean, as for my mentions here, I, th I think that most of them, I I'm curious if a couple of these are going to pop up in your actual uh, top 10 of the year. So I'm just going to hold fire on those and maybe we get to talk about them anyway. So let's move on to your uh, your 10 through 5. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. You want me to go through the 10, uh, 10 through 5, or do you want to go back and forth? How do you want to do this? Um, let's start with your number 10 and see where we go. Okay. My number 10 for the year is Atari 50, the Anniversary Celebration. Uh, this is a retro game collection that is also a museum quality retrospective on the history of Atari. I mean, we get a lot of retro game collections where you'll get like 20 arcade games uh, all together in a package or something. And that's fine. I think those are great. But I'm more interested in... I guess, preservation, game preservation, game history, and that sort of thing. And I love it when you get a package that has those extras. Uh, this one is the best one I've ever seen, uh, ever. 
of all the retrospective collections we've gotten. Um, I'm not the biggest Atari fan, like, and I don't say this because I'm old enough to have played it or I had one. I still do have one. Um, and I don't feel really precious about those games. A lot of them are really bad and I don't really want to come back to them. But the thing that's incredible about this is the way that they give you the information. They look at Atari's history from day one they break it up into eras and it's presented in this like museum quality display. Um, I've never seen anything so well organized and so detailed. They give you a timeline and then they give you high points and notable points in the history. So for example, um, it'll say like, oh, this developer figured out how to make this chip work. And then you click on this icon and then it's, it's either a short video from that time. There's lots of videos from like the seventies, which are amazing. Like see the hairstyles and the clothes and the grainy video. You're like, oh my God, you're seeing this exactly. Or it'll be a newspaper clipping. It'll be a billboard advertisement from that point of time. It'll be something from then. So it's a really amazing interactive way of learning about this particular bit of history. So you read it, you click on it, you see it right there and then there. It's really timely. You don't have to go to Google or anything. And then when they talk about a game, it'll say, oh, you know, we finally figured out how to make this one game work. We had some problems and such and such, whatever. As soon as they get to talking about it, you push the button and then you play the game right there, literally right there. It's all just so modern and clean and slick and so inclusive. It goes through the entire A to Z of Atari, the ups and the downs. They don't pull any punches that I can tell. There's some goofs and some embarrassing stuff in there. They've got their victories as well. They've got interviews with people from back then, back in the day. They've got interviews from people now, developers that we all have heard of, you know, Cliff Blazinski or Tim Schafer or somebody who just talks about now how these games influence them. And I've just never seen anything so thorough, deep, well-organized, slick, and just so well put together. I mean, this is the kind of thing, like literally, if I was walking in the Smithsonian Museum and I saw this here, I'd be like, yeah, this fits, this makes sense. It's just, it's so great. It just, it's head and shoulders above every other compilation that's ever been done. And I feel like uh, they have really set the bar uh, real high for anybody else in the future who wants to do more of these. But I do want them to do more. I would love to get one of these for every developer out there. I want to see the history and and the, the, the tribulations and the trials and the successes of everybody out there. This is so great. And I think from an archivist perspective, it's just, it is a shining star, man. It is amazing. Right. Absolutely love the idea of this one. I've heard a lot about it. I haven't played it, but you know, the kind of ongoing conversation around game preservation with closing storefronts and yeah. people emulating games and no one's really no one's really doing it fully right. Like we're kind of counting on game makers to keep the games available to some degree. And I guess that's why physical game collectors do what they do because they don't want to lose access to games. And so they build these vast libraries of games, but that's not an ideal solution either. That's an individual solution. And so I love that in this instance, the, the preservation job has been done in something that you can buy that celebrates those games in in more than just preservation, but it sounds like it's has a real documentary impact as well in that, you know, the way that Noclip are making these amazing documentaries where they talk to the developers and they uh, talk about, they show a concept art and they show early iterations and all of that stuff that is just lost to time. It's an absolutely wonderful idea. I wonder, like, outside of big names like Atari and Sega and Nintendo and those those names that we know and love. Like, I, I wonder who else will get this kind of celebrity treatment, if you know what I mean, of celebrating their back catalogue. Because I guess this one's being sold as a product, right? So it's it's relying on that Atari name to, to hook people in. But it sounds like it's doing a great job uh, actually preserving the catalogue and celebrating it. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I really fully believe that this should be used as a template for like this kind of project moving forward. Um, it is a perfect way to preserve these things because games are interactive. Games are something that we need to play and keeping them available. You know, if there's no money in it, people just tend not to do it because it takes time. It's not easy. You can't just push a button and say, port this to the Switch. It's not that simple. So I get that they want to make it a product. And I think that's fine. I mean, I'm happy to buy this. I, I would love to see just more of this because then we get the history of games. We get the development. We get the big picture and the context, right? Like it's not just about the products, about the games we play, but like the people behind them, the interesting stories, the struggles they had, the uphill battles, like the crazy stuff that happens. I mean, in this Atari one, like so many things just could have gone wrong and so many things could have just happened in a different way. And we'd have like a whole different world. Like it would have affected everything that came after it. And I think that's got to be true for other other games, other developers. I mean, there's so many stories that go on behind the scenes that are not just about we made a game and we put it out and we sold it and that's it. Like there's the people, the creativity, the the you know the ups and the downs. Like it's just so incredible. Um, so I really I really wish that more people would look at this and use this moving forward. It can't be easy. It's, I mean, it looks like a masterclass sort of thing, but I think this gives us a path forward. The interesting thing about this to me is that games have been an emerging medium for quite a while. You know, we talk about cinema. It's it's over 100 years old as a medium. Art obviously goes back centuries. Games is really the last emerging medium that we have um, that has established itself to this degree. It's currently the second most profitable medium, entertainment medium in the world, only after television and above books, magazines, music, and film. So the fact that we're starting to see these kind of things emerging is is really interesting and I, th- I think they're really onto something here like you say um, and I, I have become a patron this year of no clip video um, and the th- something that sprang to mind that's going to lead into one of my games of the year is that they did a, they did a podcast about um, a video documentary rather where they went to Guerrilla Games and they talked through the making of Horizon Zero Dawn this was the documentary that made me fall in love with them and I guess what they're doing is different it's not a collection in this way you don't just jump into the games this is something new but that, that level of um, documentary insight and just attention that they gave to Gorilla, like we, I saw things in that, like they imagined that Aloy would be riding a horse in the early iterations of that game and that there would be other aspects to this game. You could see early sketches of the game. You could see how they worked out the nature in the game so that when you're near a river, um, see like a waterside animals spawn and when you're in a mountain other animals spawn you see different weather effects and none of that is visible in the final game but it's all fascinating if you're really interested in the game um, so I think this is like a, a new frontier in a way it's, I wonder if further down the line we're going to end up thinking of Atari 50 as a bit of a breakthrough on that on that front I really hope so I really hope so because you know, it's it's a shame that this is an art medium, it's an expressive medium, it's an interactive medium, but it's also a product. And I think that right now, at this particular point in time, we are too focused on making money and we are not focused enough on preserving our history. You know, kind of the same way that a lot of like silent films got just like thrown in dumpsters or burned or whatever. We didn't preserve like the beginnings of that medium, which is a shame. I mean, there are some still left around, but we've, we're missing so much. Um, and the same thing for books and stuff. I really want these things to be around so that we can, as a, as a species, remember where we came from, draw on those for inspiration, learn from them and move forward. I mean, if we forget our past, I mean, it, it's so hard to take another step forward if you don't know where you came from. So seeing something like this, I think definitely, uh, and also the Noclip videos, I mean, I'm a big fan of Noclip as well. So this is the kind of stuff we need to be doing. And I'm glad that we are not waiting 100 years to start it, but I feel like we also need to kind of step on the gas a little bit. Absolutely. 
And as we were talking about it, it seems like a good moment to drop in one of mine. I, my, my top 10 is currently muddling around. I'm still shifting things up and down. Um, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, I spent 90 hours this year playing Horizon Forbidden West. Um, it doesn't sound like a Brad game. It is. <laughs> it's an open world. Um, it's a vast open world in which you're running through the story of Aloy. You are going through a, a map that is covered in marks. There are lots of many, lots and lots and lots of things to do. There are puzzles to solve. There are side quests to do. Um, and something that I think maybe made me love this game more than other games that have been more generally highly rated is that I, I love running through a world that just transfixes me somehow, like in in the the visual of it and the experience of it. And when you look across a vista, you are taken aback, like your breath catches in your throat. And, and for some reason, I think that the, the Horizon games maybe get a bit of a short shrift from people. They aren't taken as seriously as other games in the genre, like the Red Deads and the, you know, the top end of the open world genre. And to me, there's something more to it than that. And so as I'm listening to loads of Games of the Year content, like the Horizon games and the new game, I think when I think about my experience running through this, I have such visceral memories. Like, I played Ragnarok, and I played, like, you know, a few open-world games this year. But when I think back ac across, like, my vivid memories of this year, some of the most vivid are things like running through this strange kind of peach-coloured desert with sand blowing up around my feet and light breaking through the clouds and these strange machines just kind of scraped like scratches across the horizon, shadows falling. Um... And that, that's what Horizon brings, I think. I think that's something that I don't hear people talk about, really, is that in, in the Horizon games, um, there is a richness to the world that you're moving through that people just seem to take for granted in a way and say, yeah, it was a pretty game. And, and the facial animations are the same. It's not just pause on the skin detail, but it's the gestures that people make, the physical movements that they make, the the physical body capture and the facial expression is so subtle. Um, and so I actually think that the Horizon games are quite underrated in, in a way. And I think that Horizon Forbidden West is getting a bit of a hard deal this year. It was obviously snubbed at the Game Awards and um, <laughs> hasn't been featuring highly on a lot of um, games of the year lists that you'd expect to see it in. But did you did you dip into this one this year or did you, did you um, not even? No, I didn't even. I, to be perfectly frank, I wasn't a huge fan of the original uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, and, I, I, and for that reason, I didn't bother uh, playing the second one. It's not... Uh, I'm not going to get into it now. I, and I can totally understand why you liked it and what you said makes perfect sense. Uh, and I do think there's a, a great attention to detail in that game. But no, I didn't even I didn't even bother dipping in this year. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think I'll be talking more about Horizon Forbidden West um, and, and waving my little flag for it. <laughs> but, but what's next on your list? Marvel Snap. Uh, I, All right. Yeah, Marvel Snap. Uh, have you snapped, John? Do you snap? I have not snapped. I'm a, a card game fan, but I'm not a Marvel fan. And so I'm somewhere in the middle on this one. Man, you know, this one kind of caught me by surprise. I've been a Marvel Puzzle Quest devotee for, I want to say, something like eight years. It is my number one most played game of all time, which sounds absurd, but it's true. Uh, and I didn't think that I had any more room in my life for another mobile game, especially not another Marvel mobile game, because I felt like Puzzle Quest had me had me pretty well set but i did check it out and i gotta say it's it's pretty brilliant stuff um the game design itself is straightforward very easy to grasp and it's not too complicated you can play a match really quickly i mean i think most matches are like 
three minutes or less. I mean, they go really fast, which is great. Um, but it's also lots of depth and lots of nuance and a lot of surprise. And I think that's really the key thing about this game. It's a deck builder, but it's also based on a board that has three locations. And just really quickly, there's a bunch of different locations. And so each one has a different aspect to it. Like maybe one location will say, uh, any card that you lay here gets destroyed. Okay, the second location will be anybody here gets a plus two to their power. And the third location will be um, you can't put a card here first. And so those locations mix up and change every single time you play a match. And so you can put a deck together, a general deck or maybe a theme deck. I've got a really nice Guardians of the Galaxy deck. There's also a deck built around different um, mechanics in the game, whether it's discarding or whether it's moving locations or something. There's, there's all sorts of decks you can make, all sorts of combinations of the cards, which is great. But then on top of that, and the thing that I think really makes this game special and noteworthy is those locations. It was a stroke of brilliance because you can come prepared and if it was just like a regular card game where it's, you know, person versus person with your deck and my deck, that's one thing. But then you add in the complication of locations and something can go completely screwy. Like you can have a location that just kills what you thought you were supposed to do, or it gives you this giant bonus. You know, maybe you've got a character who does like one point of damage, but then the location says, you know, whatever you do times four. Oh my gosh. Well, I can do that thing four times now. I didn't expect to have such big guns at this party, but now I do, you know, or sometimes it'll be something that completely just hobbles you. So the, the strangeness and the unpredictability of the, the battlefields is really key. And you, man, you just never know what's going to happen. Like every match is a total surprise and it keeps you on your toes. So if you're like me and you have that like roguelike mentality where you're always up for a new combination, a surprising combination or some unexpected thing to happen, like you can think your deck is bulletproof and you've got it on lockdown, but then something strange happens. Your enemy's got a card you haven't seen before or it interacts in a weird way with a location you haven't seen before and all of a sudden you're on your ass. I mean, it just keeps things fresh and popping. And on top of that, the, the fact that they're so quick really makes it uh, wonderful um, because you can just go through, win or lose. You don't have to struggle through anything. It's, there's no four to five minute matches. And so you can iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate. And the other brilliant thing about this is that you win something after the end of every match. You don't have to win-win. Even if you lose, you get something. So it feels good even if you lose. Like you don't feel like you got kicked. You're just like, okay, well, I lost that one. I learned something. I mean, maybe that new card that I didn't see before, I want to get that one. Or maybe that combination I didn't think of. They got me, but I learned that. I can add that to my my, my toolbox. But also, I, I, I got something. I got a prize. I can level up a little bit. I got something that I wanted, and that was nice, and it feels good. You don't feel like you got you got beat. You just feel like you, you lost, but you learned something, and you walk away still feeling okay. So I feel like it's got a lot of really, really brilliant things happening in the game design aspect. I will say, the reason this doesn't rank higher uh, is because their monetization is completely whack it's bad and it's insane and it's crazy and i don't understand what they're doing um damn it was all going so well i mean it's it's <laughs> it's fine in a way you don't have to put a lot of money and i will say that this game is great for not putting money in it's mm. weird because there's no middle ground it's like you can play this game for free forever and have a really really positive experience which is what i've been doing mostly and i think that's great anybody wants to try it don't be afraid that you're going to get sucked into the money machine uh, because you can play forever and just keep getting cards and keep winning and keep moving forward. No problem for free. And at first I thought, well, that's weird. How are they going to make their money? They charge you a little nominal fee. If you want the bonus season pass, you don't have to, it's like not a big deal. But then if you do spend money, they want you to spend so much money. It was like one of the bonus packages they had was something like 300 real dollars. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You want me to either pay nothing, which I can already do. Or you want to pay 300? That's crazy. I would love to give these guys 
10 bucks a pop, get a cool card, get some points, get a new skin or something. That's a, you know, I, I want to reward these people because free games are not free. These are human beings. They got to pay for their bills. They got families to feed. You know, this is not volunteering. This is a job. So I want to reward them, but I don't want to reward them to the tune of $300. That's, that's insane. Right? So I wish they would get their monetization right. On the plus side, you don't have to engage in it. It just seems so ludicrous. I wish they would get down to earth on that. But great game. Love the mechanics. It's super brilliant. And you can play a lot for free. And I really recommend it even so. Just, man, get that monetization right. It's so whack. Right. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because like, I feel like card games um, have been this huge swell. I think, you know, when a game comes out like Slay the Spire and then a year later and two years later, suddenly there are lots of them. You yep. know, like uh, we're seeing so many farming games now and it's because Stardew Valley and then if you look down the line, people saw that it did well and they made more. Um, but often I think Marvel Snap seems like an anomaly to me in a way because it is a card game in a way that um, has entered the mainstream and maybe it's because they've put the Marvel license on it. It's, it's a fascinating decision if you're going to make a Marvel game to make a card game and it's fascinating that the Marvel Snap game has introduced digital card games to such a vast new audience. So it's a very interesting game to me. Um, it's also interesting that it's a mobile game, and it's interesting that mobile games often get short shrift critically just by nature of being mobile games. So Marvel Snap occupies a really interesting space to me. I haven't quite jumped on it because of, I think there's something a little whiffy about it, and I think that's kind of what you were saying, um, is that... I, I'm suspicious of a game like that that is um, quick, round-based, multiplayer. I think the multiplayer aspect is something that puts me off a little in the monetization. But, the f I mean, if it's a really good card game that is fun to play, then it's a really interesting place for that, that, uh, that swell of appreciation for card games over the last few years to end up, right? Yeah, I feel like they have really... Um captured lightning in a bottle here by by capitalizing on the card game trend but they really have found a unique ground to occupy um, not only mobile but also just in the way that they have combined um, elements from other games and made something completely new um, I, I could wax on about this forever and ever but i will say um, the best recommendation I can give for Marvel Snap is that it would still be a tremendous game even if you took the Marvel license out of it. So even if you stripped away Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Iron Man, I would still be playing this game because I think mechanically it's just fantastic. So the license is great. I'm a Marvel fan. But even if you don't like Marvel, I still think it's worth a look just from a design perspective. Right, and there is one similar anomaly on my list. It's floating around. I don't know what to do with it. It's a mobile game. It was a viral mobile game. It's a Word game. Did you play Wordle this year, Brad? I did play Wordle this year, and I thought it was very clever and fun. Um, but it wasn't something that stuck with me, but I did have uh, appreciation for it, yes. I played I played for maybe like two weeks before I fell off, so I feel like uh, I had a pretty good sense of it, but it didn't stick. Right, so for me, this is... I think if you were to look at um, the longest run that I had playing any game um, on consecutive days, it's without a doubt Wordle. I think my my maximum run on Wordle is 38 days, and I've had several other like 30-day uh, runs without getting it wrong, and it's become part of my daily routine in a way that is different to all of the other games in my in my gaming life. Like um, there are games where I sit down at the at my screen to play on PlayStation, sit down at my monitor to play on Xbox, lie in bed and play on Switch. And it's all like addressing a screen and having gaming time. But Wordle kind of folded into my life. Like it's a game that I habitually play with morning coffee. So I make morning coffee 
stick down the plunger, get a strong cup of espresso, sit down and do Wordle. Like, it is woven into my life in a way that no other game really has this year. But because it's such a simple thing, it's like a little crossword game. It's a little five-letter word game. Um, but it has this social media element to it too, where for a while, like Twitter was flooded with Wordle. Um, there is still a, a channel on Gaming in the Wild's Discord where several people are posting their Wordles every day. And it's still rolling on and rolling on and rolling on. Um, and I'm not quite sure what to do with this game, if you know what I mean. I'm looking at a list of games here that I've enjoyed this year. All kinds of games, vast open world games, little roguelikes. And Wordle is just sitting here, this five-letter mobile crosswordy thing. I'm not sure what to do with it, it but it, it seems similar to Marvel Snap in that way. It's like a, because Marvel Snap, it, I believe you can play it on desktop, but it's primarily a mobile game, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I have to say, John, uh, it sounds like Wordle has, for you, become something similar for me, like whether it's Snap or, or Puzzle Quest. I usually play those right before I go to bed um, and right before I play my Switch before bed. I have a whole bedtime gaming routine. That's how much of a, <laughs> of a game player I am. It's pathological, <laughs> I think. Uh, but if it's made its way into your life, it's if it's become your coffee companion, I mean, I feel like you got to give it a slot. I mean, that's, that's worthy. It's a game. It may not be AAA. It may not be you know, cutting edge and a thousand, uh, you know, polygons or whatever, but it seems to me like that's, uh, that's something to celebrate. I think it needs a slot. Right. And I'm going to enjoy people hearing people in all of their games of the year episodes, like trying to decide what to do with Marvel snap and Wordle. They are two an anomalous games in some way, you know, I mean, anomaly, anomaly, but it's still something I spend a lot of time with. And I, I feel like you got to celebrate the good, no matter what it looks like and where, where it comes from. And for me, that's definitely Snap, probably the only mobile game I spent time with. And if it's weird, then I guess so be it, because it's a real good weird. And that seems like uh, the same story with Wordle here. All right, let's keep on trucking here. What, you've got three honorable mentions. No, we're, we're in your... We're in your uh, wait a second. I'm going to make a note because I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we're at one hour, 23 minutes, and... 15 seconds. I'll come back and edit this out. No worries. Uh, so feel free to kick off with your next one. All right, let me go to my next one. I guess this is uh, probably my number eight. This is Card Shark. Uh, did you uh, by any chance uh, cross paths with Card Shark this year? Yes, I did. I completed the demo. It's a super intriguing game. Um, I have it sitting on my Switch. Um, I did not go back to it. I think it is ingenious. Um, but for some reason, it didn't stick with me. But I'm I'm kind of a fan of it. I love the art. I love the music. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear why it stuck with you. Yeah, I love Card Shark. It's another one of those just so weird and strange and brilliant and new. And I, I love that. I love um, just something fresh and something I've never seen before. Um, you know, being as old as I am and being around for as long as I have. I mean, I've, you know, there's no new idea under the sun. But this, to me, definitely felt kind of like a new idea. So it really caught my attention. Um, for those that don't know, this is set in, I believe it's revolutionary France and you play a, I don't know, an, a, a poor kid who gets taken in by some grifters who teach him how to cheat at cards. And the aristocracy at the time is all about cards and gambling and stuff. And so he, this person takes you around to all these card games and he teaches you all these different ways to cheat. And as far as I know, a lot of these are based in reality. Like these are real techniques that people have used in the past or maybe still do use today. But it's all about watching, watching the hands, watching the tells, remembering ahead of time what your 
technique is like for example uh, if uh, your opponent has a good hand take a sip of water if they've got a bad hand scratch your head something like that and it's it kind of comes together in a series of mini games where each match you go to you can choose which technique you want to use you got to change them up you can't use the same one too often otherwise you get caught and you just want to make a bunch of money and there's there is a pretty good story about revolutionary france going on in there i didn't complete this one and I don't require, uh, I, I don't put it on myself to actually finish a game before it goes on my game of the year list for, for, for several reasons. Number one, just because of time. But number two, I do plan on coming back to this one. I love the art, the hand-drawn art. I love the premise of cheating at cards. I loved like the setting. And there were actually quite a number of Revolutionary France games this year. It was kind of a weird theme that popped up. Uh, I played, I think, maybe five or six that were all set in the same period, which was kind of strange. Um, but I definitely want to come back to this one. I definitely want to finish it. I think the problem that came up for me was that you eventually learn a lot of different techniques and you have to you have to be playing this pretty focused and keep those techniques in mind which i guess is a real life parallel because if you're cheating you can't exactly pull out a book and say how do i cheat again and look it up if you forget you got to remember it and i was kind of split between a couple games between game critics and so video games and i just couldn't keep the cheating straight like i'm too honest of a person and so i would get back in i would fail the cheating i'm like oh oh i gotta bone up again um but i am going to come back to it in the quiet doldrums here and i'm going to really focus and i do want to finish it it was really intriguing i liked it a lot i just needed more available brain power for it absolutely agree when i think back uh, to playing the demo of this one i remember that there are there's an interesting set of mini games that you have to do. Card Shark, I think some people think it's a card game. Obviously, it's not really. It's a series of mini games, and they include like pouring wine whilst trying to look at someone's cards yes, and signal yes, yes. them to the other guy, or like uh, counting cards. So it's like one, two, three, and then the four, yep. and one, two, five, six, seven, then the eight. And so it's not really about cards in a way. Like it, it of course it is, but it's um, the gameplay is actually something else, isn't it? Oh, exactly. That's a very uh, great encapsulation. All these different approaches, all these different little mnemonics that you have to do, all these different um, tricks. And, and and that's exactly why I needed more brain power because uh, if I forget to count, is it the third or the fourth? Oh, I got it wrong. It was the third or something. And then the whole thing goes sideways and leaves a bunch of money. And sometimes you get caught cheating, which is never good. So yeah, it's just, it's really great. It's just, it demands attention and it de demands devotion, just like I guess real life cheating does. Not that I'm speaking from experience, um, but I loved it. I thought it was just so fresh and so so cool and so interesting. I can't wait to get back to it. Right, and it's interesting that like games like Inculati and Pentiment and Card Shark all came out at the same time. It's like periods of history that we just haven't seen in games are suddenly everywhere in games. Exactly, exactly. I don't know if everybody like is on some kind of like CC email chain behind the scenes that we don't know about, but it seems like <laughs> there's always these groups of games that come out and it, the, the timing of them seems impossible. Like they all attended the same game jam at some point, or maybe maybe somebody mentioned something or there was a talk that inspired a bunch of people at the same time, but it's really weird that this happens. I mean, Revolutionary France, what made people glom onto that all of a sudden? I don't know, but uh, but that is kind of how it goes. So that was this year's theme for me. Great pick. Glad to hear that you enjoyed that one so much. You've encouraged me to go back and give it another try. Certainly an interesting game. Um, so what is your number seven? Uh, number seven, RPG Time, The Legend of Right. Have you played this one? I have, because I heard you talk about it on So Video Games, and you were quite impassioned about this game. Oh, um, man. Carlos was a fan too, I believe. Went out and bought it. This is this is a real one-off, huh? Oh, this is a... This is a crazy game. This is one that I feel like needs to have a documentary about it. I guess it was just this one developer's um, passion project for, I want to say it was like seven or eight years, them just like slowly toiling away at it. But it really is so full of heart and joy and excitement. Um, it's basically, it's I don't want to say it's an 
RPG because it kind of is an RPG, but it's also kind of like a papercraft game. And it's also sort of like a mini game collection. And it's also sort of a skewing of RPG tropes. And it's also all of those things. And it's also none of those things. And it just is this most ingenious, original, heartfelt sort of creation. I mean, it's impossible to pigeonhole it, but basically you're pretending to be a child who is playing an RPG in a notebook, like a pen and paper notebook. And so the the play field looks like an open notebook and there's all these scribbles and the scribbles where you play and there's all these notes and he's got these little counters and little figures and little, you know, like your life bar is a tape measure that he pulls out. And, you know, you take hit and the tape measure goes back in a little bit. And when you destroy an enemy, like a pencil comes down and it erases the enemy when he's dead. And there's all these sort of like meta elements happening, um, but it all works as a game. And in, in addition to that, like it's really, really fresh. Like there's all these concepts that they go through, uh, like boss dungeons or leveling up or, you know, having better gear. And they, the person that did this, like has really skewed everything and turned it on its side. So nothing works the way you think it does. And it's all like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, and it's all really clever, just really clever. So full of energy and freshness and invention. Uh, I loved every second of this and I didn't see anybody playing it. And I, the thought that this person was toiling away in some dark basement or at their cubicle for seven or eight years to make something so astonishing and then to have the entire industry kind of just collectively shrug is absolutely heartbreaking uh i i just it just i can't even believe it so i want to mention this game as much as possible i think there's a lot of people out there that would really like this game a lot if you want something that's sly and inventive and kind of pokes a finger at tropes it's just it's just absolutely brilliant there's no other way to describe it I agree. I haven't played it for as long as you have. I haven't played it through, but even playing it for an hour or so, there is a level of inventiveness with this game. And I think that the thing that maybe struck me straight off the bat was like a love for childhood mm-hmm. in a way, like a, yes. for playing a game on like um, on graph paper, playing a game on line paper for making a game happen. It, it reminds me a little bit of like, you know, the spirit of someone like... Um, Shigeru Miyamoto, who talks about uh, the Zelda games coming from his experience of going into a cave or something like that. It's this deep nostalgia that takes you back to that that period of life. It seemed like this game was rife with that. Oh, I, I agree. It, it is a celebration of childhood. I mean, you can easily imagine this person being a kid in uh, you know elementary school or in junior high and having all these ideas. Maybe they don't have the programming knowledge, but they've got graph paper and they got a ruler, they got tape, they got construction paper, they got glue and doing all these things and creating all this game. I mean, I've done something similar. I bet most people have probably done something similar back in their childhood days. And to see that captured so truthfully and so effectively, oh, it's just, it's golden. It's just, it's so magical. And it's just like a window into this like, really nice days gone by that you you know those those days are gone except now you can revisit them in this game and it's so truthful and and accurate i just i have nothing but admiration for this game it is a truly masterful work of art right and i think that for anyone that's listening i think more more people have maybe played something like takeshi and hiroshi which is something similar that came out Um, i don't remember if it was this year or last year but it was where an, an older brother is setting games for his younger brother and there is this lovely feeling of like a fraternal old school paper tabletop gameplay that is is, it's really nice and it's nice to see that in this game too this is a great pick and and thank you for um, introducing me to it as well excellent excellent i am glad i hope more people um check it out because this deserves way more eyeballs than it got for sure uh the next one number six uh i think this is i don't know 
if you want to call it AAA, but this is maybe one of my more mainstream picks. Uh, Mario plus Rabbids Sparks of Hope. Uh, I played the original when it came out and I thought it was really great. Uh, I'm not a fan of Rabbids. I think they are really insipid and dumb looking and I just don't really care for them at all as characters. But I do uh, like the Mario franchise and I do love turn-based strategy, turn-based tactics. And so uh, I put up with the Rabbids in order to get to the good stuff. But this game is so good, I kind of forget that the Rabbids are in it. Which is really saying something, because I really can't stand Rabbids. Um, but the turn-based strategy, kind of like an XCOM plus Mario plus Rabbids, and the stuff that they put in this game is just really polished. It's really well done. Um, it's not a huge departure from what we saw in the original Mario plus Rabbids, but everything is just really uh, smooth. Like, they've, they've listened to the feedback. They got rid of all the problems that I had with it. Everything just flows. It's beautiful. It's straightforward and easy to understand, but it's also... Uh, nuanced and lots of customization and lots of fun to be had with your team building and during each round of tactics. Um, I just I just think the characters are great. The abilities are great. It just feels like a very light, fun XCOM. And I really like how they have capitalized on movement, which is a big nod to the Mario franchise with Mario's jumping and traditionally being such an acrobatic little character rather than having the characters bolted down to a grid or anything like that. I mean, you can jump and move around and fly and stuff, and you can flank people by trampolining off Luigi's head, or maybe someone does a dodge roll, or you've got a weapon that goes over cover. There's all sorts of like weird little twists that you don't normally see in a turn-based tactics game. Uh, and I just, I just really appreciate it for it. It's carving out its own identity. I think it was just really well done, really polished, really colorful and smooth effortless to play if you like tactics games it just it just really hit me just the right way and uh, i'm a big fan of tactics games especially on the switch uh, i feel like that's a great platform for them and it's a beautiful match for the switch so um it, it's not a huge departure it's not fresh and innovative the way that the first one was but it's just it's so well done i couldn't not like it right i've played i think probably about 60 percent of the first one really enjoy it um I feel like strangely happy for Ubisoft about this game. <laughs> like, they're kind of cranking them out, you know, and they're kind of trying to have their kind of indie program with like Child of Light and stuff like that. And then they have Mario and Rabbits, and you kind of like, yeah, you go Ubisoft. Yeah, you can be a real grown-up developer and have credibility. And like, um, Mario and Rabbits is 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 a nice thing for them. It's a fun game. Um, I hear that this one. Um, dispensers with the the grid, right? How does that affect it? Yeah, they really just kind of let you run around the battlefield, which I think is totally fine. It still works. It still feels very tactical. Um, each person has like a circle that they can walk in and then that can be expanded by different upgrades. You get the jumping upgrades or the, gl the gliding slash floating upgrades. So you really have a large area that you can move around on, which kind of changes the whole nature of the tactics rather than creeping forward and creeping forward like an XCOM or something. And I'm not I'm not trash talking that. I mean, I love XCOM. It's one of my favorite games of all time. But just the, the idea that you can start at the beginning of a level and think, okay, well, if I move Peach over here and then bounce Luigi off her, then I move Mario over here and he can dash and then get on this and then jump. And then, you know, within one round, you've got Mario at the far end of the battlefield flanking people from behind. I mean, that's that's pretty radical for a turn-based tactics game. And just the, the notion that you would have to look at these battlefields in a much larger, more fluid way is pretty exciting. That's one of the best things about this particular franchise, I think, is it just really kind of takes movement and turns it on its head. But in a good way, that really works. So I enjoy that very much. I think it's I think this is a really great series. I enjoy it.
So just to recap, your 10 through 5, we start with Atari 850, Marvel Snap, Card Shark, RPG Time, The Legend of Wright, and Mario and Rabbids Sparks of Hope. Great selection. So let's move on to your top five in no particular order. What's the, the first game that you have here? It's not going 5-3-1 this time. <laughs> yes, yeah, so my non-specific first in the group of five. Uh, probably the biggest, most uh, non-surprising and to-be-expected game, Elden Ring. I couldn't not have that one in the top ten. Uh, longtime Souls fan, longtime From fan, even before Souls was a thing. Uh, and so Elden Ring was great. I, I, I had a great time with it. Uh, I played almost the entire thing in co-op with my wife, which was amazing. Uh, except for the fact that if you play in co-op, you get invaded all the time. Uh, like once every two minutes or so in some sections. It was pretty bad. I hope that they've tweaked that uh, since we played. But playing it co-op with my wife was an amazing experience. My wife is a great Souls player as well. She's a pretty hardcore gamer just like I am. And that was a wonderful thing to do. But I like the, the open world aspect of it. I think it was a natural, logical next step for From. Uh, not gonna bash them because I am a longtime fan, but I think they were getting a little stale in the Souls formula. So I'm glad that they pushed it forward and did something truly different. Uh, and to me, the open world was just great. I loved running around and exploring things and the density of locations and the, the density of things to explore was pretty staggering. I mean, you couldn't go five feet without finding something interesting, whether it be a weapon or a, a neat encounter or a vista or something that was worth doing. Um, I just had a great time with it. I mean, of course, there are still some issues with it. Um, I don't think From is very good at storytelling. I think that's like their worst aspect. I wish they would step it up. And it was doubly bad with the open world because they didn't know where you were going to be and when you were going to be there. And so the stories were even more fragmented. I thought they were impossible to follow. I had to, to consult an FAQ for almost all of them because, I mean, the world's enormous and you don't know which order you're supposed to go in or what, you know, where things are. I mean, in, in terms of design, I had a couple ideas how they could make that work better. Unfortunately, they did not have me on their team, which was, I guess their loss, uh, from Miyazaki. I'm still available. Give me a call. Um, but yeah, other than the story stuff and maybe a couple bosses, which I felt like were really kind of taking the piss, as people say in the UK, uh, I just had a great time with it. And I was really devoted to it. I played it pretty incessantly once I started. And I, the thing that I really was happiest about was a uh, return to form for From in that they got away from the kind of prescribed nature of gameplay in Bloodborne and especially with Sekiro. Our Sekiro being their most restrictive, most you will play the way we want you to play a game, which has never really been From's MO. I mean, they've always been about customization, options, you know, min-maxing, changing things up. I mean, even before Souls, when they were doing, uh, you know, Kingsfield or when they were doing Armored Core, that's really been their kind of company philosophy. Uh, so Sekiro was, I think, a pretty disappointing experience for me on m multiple levels, mostly because you couldn't really adjust it to how you play. And I think when I think of From, I think of playing how I want to, whether it's a strength build, quality build, magic build, whatever, and just having options. Uh, so whether I'm... Uh, a Twitch player or a tanking player. There, there was always something for everybody in most of their games. So I'm glad they got a, they got back to that. Like they gave you tons of options, more options than you could shake a stick at. And, and that combined with the open world really gave you a sense of owning the character, um, owning your place in that world and kind of just being in there the way that you wanted to be there. Uh, which was great. On top of that, it was just like massive and it was always something interesting to do. I just, I loved every minute of it. 
Yeah, nothing quite defined this year like Elden Ring. It is the game of the year, really. Um, and for many people, it is their personal favourite as well. It was my first Souls game experience. Having been sceptical of From Software because of the legendary difficulty and the aggressive and intentional difficulty of those games, I hadn't played one before, um, but I was swept away by the hype of Elden Ring. And when I think back to this game... Um, I had a lot of fun with this one. I played 70 hours of it, but when I think back to it, what were my memories of this game? It was it was the world itself. It was the lands between. And I have some really wonderful memories of this game, of stepping out of that first building into Limgrave, looking around and just seeing that world stretching out before me. Um, and some of the locations in this game are just really fantastic. It's, it's a, a fantastical world just to walk around. I think back to the first time that I got a lift down under the ground to the underground part of the game and found a starlit sky deep under the surface of the lands between in the really striking River Siofra Well. Um, and I think back to Stormvale Castle, just experiencing that vast labyrinthine space with all of the Gothic architecture and the, the strangeness that goes on inside that that huge building. And so much of it is optional. Um, it's a wonderful labyrinth. And there are other locations too, like the Land Island, with the amazing Rhea Lucaria Academy just standing tall above this huge wetland, and the seeing that magic school and the architecture of that, the the huge spires and the, the vast church-like windows and the, the libraries inside of it. Um, there is just so much to enjoy in this world. I have strong memories of watching these mournful giants with kind of grotesquely hollowed out sort of cavities on their bodies, and they're just dragging this huge black carriage in such a, a melancholy scene across this this desolate world. Um, and so while people talk about the difficulty of the game, and it's definitely a factor, um, I was able to find my way through it. I was able to use magic, and I was able to use ranged weapons and to develop skills to take on this game. Um, and I did play 70 hours of it. I didn't complete it. I got past Margit, Godric, and a couple of other bosses in this game. I even got past Redan. And that was probably enough game for me. I will probably come back to Elden Ring at some point. But but I do think that The Lands Between is a spectacular place to visit. And, and it is a memory that will stick with me playing this game. Yeah, you know, I... I don't think that Elden Ring is a perfect game, but I do think it's probably the perfect place for anybody who is curious about FromSoft or Dark Souls to get in. Um, you know, it's it's certainly not easy, but I think that there's a lot of ways you can mitigate that difficulty for you. It's also open world, so if you get to a place where you don't want to be, there's like a jillion other places you can go. You can grind as much as you want if you need to level up a little bit. Uh, all sorts of different weapons and equipment you can find a build that works for you, whether it's magic or a big sword or arrows or whatever. Um, I think there's, a, there's also a lot of like uh, quality of life conveniences, like the fast travel and certain other aspects to it that are not nearly as harsh or as restrictive as it used to be. So even though it still is a Souls game for sure and has all of the from hallmarks, I think this is definitely the place where if you don't know if you like a Souls game, you should probably get into this one because it'll have a lot of similarities to other games you've played. And although you may have to learn a little bit about the, co the combat and about how mechanics work, uh, I think this is the friendly est one, you know, a little asterisk at the end of that, I'm not saying it's friendly, but it is the friendly est. And so, yeah, there's a lot to offer people who may not think that from is their jam. 
So we've kicked off the top five with a heavy hitter. I'm kind of curious if there are going to be, like, what what degree of curveballs are we going to have in here? I'm expecting that there's going to be a few big games here, but I'm also super curious to see what kind of curveballs are coming my way. So so what's next in your non-specific top five? <laughs> uh, well, we're going to keep it Souls flavored for a moment here. The next one is a really recent release. It kind of snuck in under the wire to displace one of my other picks. But Grime, Colors of Rot, I'm playing literally right now. I mean, not right now, we're recording a podcast, but five seconds before I got in this podcast, I was playing it. And this is another Souls-like. I didn't think I was going to want to play another Souls-like this year because I put, you know, I feel pretty close to 200 hours into Elden Ring and I'm like, okay, this is good. And after playing Elden Ring, I didn't think that there's a lot of room for anything that was a lesser game. I feel like it's got to just keep getting better and better. I don't have time for also-rans in this category. I mean, when you play the best, that's, that's the best. But... Playing a 2D Souls-like is kind of a different thing that From hasn't dabbled in, and I think this is a really, really, really good one. Um, it is a Souls-like for sure, uh, but it also incorporates a lot of Metroidvania elements. It also incorporates a lot of platforming, much more precision platforming than I was expecting um, from the trailers or from the get-go. In this particular game, you play a strange creature that is kind of humanoid. You're made of stone, but your head is this, like, black hole void um it looks a little bit like um oh gosh what is the the other roguelike oh man that has the guy with the uh is it west of dead no no that is that is a good one that is not the one i was thinking of Damn. it's another 2d roguelike I, I had it i shot my shot no that was a good shot that was a good shot uh oh it's that really popular 2d roguelike that has great animation and your character has a weird energy ball for a head i can't remember what it is it's escaping me at the is moment. it dead cells yes dead cells thank you um it, it looks like dead cells it's nothing like dead cells at all um and what i like about this is that you're in this weird underground world it seems like all stone based at first but then there are some like bio-organic elements and the world comes together in a really strange way it's very intriguing uh they tell a story which i think is much easier to follow than the traditional soul story even though it's not completely spoon-fed to you but i feel like it's much much easier to put the pieces together and it makes more sense. But the thing that I like about this is that even though it's obviously a Souls-like and Metroidvania, they have really added things to the formula that give it its own identity. And what I mean by that is rather than adding more and more and more and more and more abilities to your person, you do get more traversal abilities. Um, you start off just walking around, but then you get like a dash, you get a parry, you get a double jump eventually, and you know, those kind of things for traversal. But the thing that I liked about this was they, they maintained laser focus on the combat. The combat is really good. It's dialed in. It feels good. It's got a good weight to it. And this is a game that heavily relies on parry mechanics. In general, I hate parrying uh, because number one, my reflexes are terrible and I'm, I'm, I'm trash at parrying. Uh, it's a miracle that I ever got through Sekiro as much as I did. But in this game, I think the parry window is pretty forgiving um, from the beginning. I know Carlos kind of disagreed with me about that, but I feel like it's a pretty good parry window and you can also widen it. And there's also uh, other mitigating factors you can do to to make it easier for yourself to parry. But they focus on the combat where you're just jumping and using your one of two weapons. You can have a two weapon max, but they never complicate it more than that. The way that the complication and the, the nuance comes in is by your passives. You have all these different passives that you get in the game and that subtly changes how you play. Um, so if you are really good at parrying, you can put all your uh, passive points into other things. But if you need help parrying, then you can shore up that bit and, you know, maybe forego some of the other bonuses that you would have had. But at least it helps you get through to survive the parrying 
being part of it. Uh, but I, I just loved how you were just really focused on the mechanics. You're jumping, you're platforming, you're doing the combat, you're parrying. And no matter how far you're in the game, you still stay focused on that. And it feels good all the way through. But it does evolve as you go, depending on which weapon you choose and which passives you choose. The quality of the gameplay is just kind of like one inch below the surface, but it's there and you can see it and you can feel it. And it's so subtle without ever being uh, overcomplicated. Like it, there was a real danger that a game like this could become something like, uh, like a devil may cry or something like that, where you get more and more combos and the button presses get more and more complex and you got to string together these long moves. And that's fine if you want that. Uh, but in this game, I think it would have been to its detriment. Instead, you're always kind of doing the same action, but that's good because you need to have it dialed in. You need to have it reflexive and instinctual and the way just the way that it gets evolved over time is just it never clutters how you're playing it never confuses you your hands never forget what they're doing and it just is so clean and so streamlined i really like it a lot but on top of that it's got a lot of really fun weapons like a, a little finger bone that stretches out and grabs people there's a spinal cord that shoots people with its electric impulses. There's a jawbone that chomps on people when you hit them with it. Like it's, it's there's really fun weapons and I want to use them all. And I, I just really like the way that it feels and handles. And it's just really great. I mean, I, I think this is a really well, well done 2D Souls like, and I would put it right alongside um, top of class stuff like Blasphemous or Hollow Knight. I think it is, it is as good as those and it deserves to be listed right along those. Well, I think that you've certainly sold a couple of copies of this game in this podcast. I think there's a few people in the Gaming in the Wild Discord whose ears are going to be perking up. I think uh, Grabloid and I think Dave Jackson, um, if you're listening to this, this sounds like one for you. Um, so as well as adding to my backlog, I think uh, Brad's starting to add to yours as well, maybe. I hope so. I hope so. I just want to add a little asterisk there. Um, I know we were kind of talking earlier about maybe playing games later uh, in terms of like having things ironed out. Uh, real talk, and to be totally fair, I don't know that I would have liked this game as much as I do when it dropped, because uh, the Colors of Rot update, which is what you get when you buy the game, you get the whole package, you get Grime plus Colors of Rot in it, it's the new version, but when you look at the list of fixes, there's a ton of fixes, they... They had some issues that were at the game at present, and they listened to the fan feedback. Uh, things like they needed better fast travel, they needed different um, stats associated with different armor, they needed some rebalancing, they needed some mobility options. This is a significantly improved game. So if you if you played the game when it launched and didn't care for it, I think it's it's different enough now that it's worthy of a second look. But if you're getting into it now for the first time, this is the game in its best form. And I, I honestly don't know if I would have liked it as much back then, but I love it now. And I'm really glad that the developers went back to the drawing board and did all the fixes they did. And it's a long list of really significant ones. So I'm glad that I got into it now and not then. And I think right now it's in fantastic shape. Right, and I'm not averse to those games. Some of the games that you've mentioned here, like Blasphemous, I have played some of, um, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I would say that Hollow Knight is a game that really got me. Um, that one really got us hooked into me. There was something about the atmosphere of it, the orchestral music, the darkness, the constant journey down into the hollow nest. It's, it's a, a really wonderful mood in Hollow Knight, and I think that that made me stick through the difficulty and really, really master that game and get to the end of it. Whereas Blasphemous, um, I enjoyed, but it didn't quite have that same vibey feel to me. Um, so I was wondering, where do you think this one comes down between that vibey Hollow Knight thing and the Blasphemous style? I feel like it's closer to Hollow Knight in that sense. Um, I feel like there's a real progression in terms of what the world looks like, the environments that you're finding. Like, it's really... I just always wanted to see what was coming next. And I was always so interested in where I was and what was going on and what it represented. Um, the theme, 
of the world. I'm not going to spoil anything, but now that I've gotten to the end of the game and I know what the ultimate themes are, I was like really impressed and really kind of surprised by what was going on once the the onion was peeled back. Uh, and also I will say the score is great. Uh, and that was another one of the big changes they added. They added a lot more uh, music and uh, better music than it was in the first uh, iteration. So if you like music, there's some really fantastic tracks in this game. So these, these, these stunning otherworldly biomechanical and stone visuals with some of the boss music and some of the exploration music is just great. Um, it's not anywhere near as hard as Hollow Knight. So if you felt like Hollow Knight was a taxing one, um, there's definitely some challenge to this game, but it's nowhere near as hard as Hollow Knight, especially like the Hollow Knight DLC to me was like way over the top too hard. Um, but it's it's more Hollow Knight than it is Blasphemous, I think. Well, in addition to those two copies you've sold, I think you might have just sold another one. Um, <laughs> this sounds like a game that I'm going to try. So thanks for bringing it up. Excellent. Excellent. I'm going to let the PR people know I'm doing their job for them. Excellent. <laughs> uh, the next one is a one that I feel like you are a fan of as well. Citizen Sleeper, if I'm not mistaken, you like this one, right? I'm overjoyed to hear you bringing this game up. This is this is riding high on my um, on my games of the year as well. I absolutely love this game. I'm a huge fan of Citizen Sleeper. I'm really happy to hear that it's landed for you too. So please tell me, what, what was your experience of this one? Oh my God. I love Citizen Sleeper so much, which is strange because I played uh, this developer's previous game in Other Waters and I really bounced off it pretty hard. Uh, I, I don't know what happened there, but that felt like a real mismatch. Although now that I like Citizen Sleeper so much, I am going to go back and give it a second go. But Citizen Sleeper is fantastic. It, you know, the writing is superb. It's got a great sci-fi slant. They look at humanity. Um, the RPG mechanics are there, but there's also like this perfectly and pleasantly gamified world where everything is handled through dice rolls and resource management, and you're free to pursue as many of the storylines in whatever order you like. And so I don't ever feel punished for playing it. I don't feel like, I mean, there is some time limits here and there, but I feel like they're pretty lenient most of the time. Uh, I just engaging in this world in this visual novel slash RPG slash dice game way it was just such a brilliant marrying of so many different mechanics that you might not think go together, but really go together ultimately well. And what I think I like most about this is the examination of humanity, because in each story, each little vignette, each little side quest, there's there's something discussed there, whether it's friendship, whether it's trust, whether it's, um, you know, the singularity, maybe it's something else. Uh, but in, in all this, you grow as a person, and that's reflected also in the game mechanics. And it seems a little maybe under the hood a little bit. And I've heard some people complain, oh, this game was too easy. Well, I don't really think that difficulty was the point of this game. And if you think that's the point, then maybe you missed the point because you start this game as a, a, I don't know, replicant or synthetic human or something like that, all alone, cold, running out of energy, you need to survive. But as you play the game, you make friends and you gain resources. And by the time you get to the end of the game, I mean, I don't know about you, John, but I had tons of stuff I needed. I had tons of electricity. I had tons of vaccine. I had tons of mushrooms. I had all the stuff I needed, plenty of money. And I think that that ease of, of play, which is also reflected in my thriving as a character, is a direct reflection of my character's growth as a person in this world. The more friends you make, the more connections you make, the bridges you build, the bonds you have, those people support you. Those people are there for you. And that's kind of just like humanity in general. Like, you know, it takes a village not just to raise a child, but to survive. No man is an island. And so 
when you have friends, when you have family, when you have people you can count on, that enriches your life and it makes your life easier. It just flat out does. And they've captured that perfectly in this game, in the mechanics, like ludically. Uh, they don't like outright say it, but I think that the fact that it gets easier as you go on is exactly how it should be. It should be easier as you go on. It wouldn't make sense otherwise in the context of the story. So I I feel like this game is a success on every single level. It like visually, the art is fantastic. I think the mechanics are fantastic. I think the writing's fantastic. I think the the development and the progression of the campaign is fantastic. It's all like it's all fantastic. I don't think I have a single complaint about this game. Yeah, this one is a, a real keeper for me as well. Um, I think that for me, this one had one of the strongest senses of place. Again, like I was saying about Elden Ring, like I love a game that has a sense of place, a sense of where you are um, and an atmosphere that you can sink into. And the experience of arriving on Erlin's eye, um, the way that you do in this game as a refugee and someone just pulls you out of a derelict ship, uh, wraps a tinfoil blanket around you and kind of gives you somewhere to sleep and says, okay, you're going to have to go and carve out a life here. Um, and the way that that feels, the, the feeling of arriving somewhere new, of knowing no one, of being in this deeply precarious situation um, and moving through all the spaces, moving through the marketplaces, moving through the apartment blocks and the industrial areas and starting to starting to pull a life together in Citizen Sleeper, starting to find a way to um, get work, starting to find a way to get the medication that you need to, to survive. Um, I felt so engrossed and so emotionally affected by the way that all of that is done in this game. Um, the writing is absolutely beautiful in this game. Um, some of the people that you meet in this game are wonderful too. Um, the noodle stall guy, um, some of the, the pilots, the union workers, the mechanics, um, and all of the different types of societies that have interlocked and grown on Erlin's Eye 2 um, are just fascinating, from the crime syndicates through to the working people, the unions. Um, there is a lot of politics baked into Citizen Sleeper, um, but it's not heavy-handed at all. Um, and as you move through this game, you can kind of choose what kind of life you want to build for yourself. You can choose who you take an interest in from the people that you meet and what kind of life you want your new life on Erlin's Eye to be. Um, and I went through and got all of the endings in this game. And by the end of it, um, I, I got the ending that I think was the one I wanted. But after I had exhausted all of the endings and there was no more story left, I just kind of kept playing. Um, you can go into this gameplay loop of using your dice um, to earn money, uh, to go and pick mushrooms, to talk to people. And the gameplay loop just felt right. And I felt like I had really carved out a life for myself and I didn't want it to end in this game. So I, I kept playing and I think that that's kind of rare for me. Um, even when the story was over, I still wanted to be playing this game. I have gone back to it again and started another playthrough. I have played um, some of the DLC. I think that this is a very, very special game. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy that it landed for you too. And it's on your list. Oh my God, I couldn't agree more. I mean, every word you said, I mean, yes, exactly. I went through the game. I did every single side quest, every single thing systematically, just like you did. And I I chose not to... Uh, you can do the endings, but also to not do the endings, to keep playing intentionally. And I did that because I wanted to stay on Erlin's Eye. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave. And so I kept playing and I got to the end. I did all the quests. And then I kept playing again because just like you said, I I got here as this, this, this castaway and I, I made friends. I made my life. And now... I'm going to live my life. I'm going to, I'm going to farm these damn mushrooms. I'm going to make some money. And I, I played for a pretty good amount of time after 
there was basically quote unquote nothing left to do. And just this, just the satisfaction of knowing that I made it, that I, I carved out a space for myself, that I have friends, I have places to go. I, I had a life. It was so satisfying and it was so parallel to the many experiences I've had in my life uh, on my own of, of me moving to a new place or having to make new friends or having some kind of a journey in that way. Um, it just, it rang really true to me and it really felt as satisfying. I, I loved being on Erlen's Eye. And, and right now I'm very eagerly awaiting, I think it's the last DLC. I played the first bit of DLC and it was kind of short and I thought that might be better to play them all three at once. So I'm going to wait until it's all out and I'm very eager to go back and just play that DLC. And maybe after I finish the DLC, maybe I'll just farm mushrooms for a while longer just because, just because it's pleasant to do so. I think this is a marvelous experience. Yeah, this is, this is an all-timer. It is a classic for sure. All right. Only two games left to go. What's the next one? Two left. I'm I'm guessing a lot of people are going to have this one on their list. Vampire Survivors. I had a great time with this one. I wasn't sure what to expect. And I had heard a lot about it on PC, uh, but I'm not much of a PC player. I just like, I would rather be on console just in general for everything. So I waited and waited and waited. And again, like kind of the theme of the show is something is better when you get to it later. Um, it came to console. It had a lot of updates, a lot of additional content, a lot of polishes and bug fixes. Um, so this is the one where it's an arcade type title. Uh, I don't even know what to even compare it to because I'm a really old guy. So I want to say it's something like Robotron 2084, but like nobody was even born when that game was out. I don't know what a more, re- you know, Smash TV. That's also super dated. That's like 20, 30 years ago. I don't know what game I can compare it to. Uh, you're in safe company. I've played those. <laughs> it's one of those twin stick kind of things, but except it's not. It's only a single stick, but it kind of feels like a twin stick. But, you know, it's obviously Castlevania inspired arcadey top-down 2D where you just take a character and you slowly incrementally increase and upgrade your character and all the combat is automatic like it's auto fire and so really all you're doing is moving your character around and managing mobs it doesn't seem like something that would be so incredibly captivating but man once I understood how this game worked which granted it took about maybe like one run and I'm like oh okay I get it I was just I was glued to this thing I could not put it down I was hooked on unlocking things, I mean, it helps to give you a little to-do list. And so if, you, if you're the kind of person who likes to check things off a list, which I sometimes am, uh, I was like, oh, okay, great. I know what to do. And these are pretty manageable goals and they're really short. I can knock them out and feel like I got a satisfying run uh, every, t- every single time I played something. Uh, the mechanics were interesting. The combinations of powers were interesting. Um, getting through these each, each situation was interesting. There was just like a lot of variety in what would otherwise be looked at as a very simple straightforward game but like each run was kind of different and it wasn't it wasn't for a long while before I settled into like my usual groove where I kind of had all my strategy planned out and had my favorite weapons and I kind of had a little little niche carved out for myself Um, I got there and that was comfortable when I got there but I was experimenting a lot there was a lot to see a lot to do a lot of secrets and I just had a great time with this I I showed it to my wife and I wasn't sure if she was going to like it and she (laughs) She loved it. I think even more than I did. We both 100%ed it. And I can't say that about a lot of games this year. So I just thought it was brilliant. Everything about it was brilliant. Wonderfully done. Uh, It had just the right hooks. It was just sticky enough. It was, uh, you know, enough options in there that you could customize things to your liking. It just was a, a real a real amazing success story coming out of nowhere from this indie developer who I've never heard of before. Uh, just, just, it shows what you can do when you've got a clear vision and you work towards it. I mean, this was just a marvelous experience this year. Yeah, this was for sure a game that captured the zeitgeist as well. It's probably the viral hit of this year. Um, no one saw Vampire Survivors coming. I've enjoyed this game. I've enjoyed, um, playing through it. I've enjoyed unlocking characters. I've enjoyed powering up. Um, It was tricky at first, you know, until you find the ropes and you find the build that you like. Um, But I did find my way through Vampire Survivors and got pretty far, I would say. Once I'd 
broken the back of how to play it and found the the combinations that I like. Um, I started to get to a point where I was reaching the end of progression, where I felt like I had done everything that I could do. I was beating bosses and and I kind of hit a dead end with it. Um, there were some quite obscure seeming um, invitations to progress further. Mm-hmm. Like in one level, there is like a, a pair a, bl- a black bony hand that appears on the screen and it kind of clips its fingers. And then after a while, it clips its fingers again as if you've just missed a window of opportunity. And I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, I think there are also a whole bunch of objects that you can find in this game that help you um, unlock and progress further. So I'm interested that you 100%ed this one because I think I hit a plateau with it. Um, And I'm wondering if you had to look anything up in this one or did you find that all of the progression happened in a a natural way uh, for you when you played this one? I think most of it was pretty straightforward. I was pretty methodical about going through each character and checking off as much as I did. And I noticed that if I went in order and and did as much as possible, it always opened up a few more doors. And whatever the new thing was, if I did that thing, then it would open up something else. I mean, some of it was tough. And there, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I definitely had to wiki a couple things where I'm like, I just don't understand what's going on here. Like, where is this thing? Or what am I supposed to do? Especially for some of the the really secret characters where I just wasn't getting some of the clues. Um, but yeah, once, once I, once I committed to it and once I told myself I was going to do at least one or two runs a day with the goal of, of, of checking off at least one thing on my list, um, there was just enough of a breadcrumb trail for me to keep going and keep going. And it wasn't until the very, very end that I'm like, okay, I, I'm really stuck. I don't know what to do. And then a quick wiki and then I was back into it. So I didn't hit too many barriers, but again, um, you know, I had to be pretty methodical about it. Okay, well, that's good to hear. I think I found a couple of characters that I liked and stuck with. I enjoyed the character that begins with um, the crosses, the the magic wand, and I've played through a few of them, but it certainly didn't methodically, um, as I unlocked characters, I didn't methodically work through and complete every area with every character. So um, it's good to know that... Um, that that was the method that worked for you. I certainly had a very good time with this one. Um, there's few things more satisfying than just really hitting your stride with this one, watching everything on the screen explode, even if it's not, you know, triple A whizzy graphics and stuff. It was a really nice success story this year. And, and I think everyone can be happy for a solo dev success like this. Yeah, I agree. And it really is a testament to doing your own thing. You know, like we, we talked about how a success story will spawn some sequels, you know, like all the Stardew Valleys or all the Souls Likes or all the Metroidvanias or whatever. And and that's fine. Um, you know, those things have a place and there's there's nothing wrong with those. But I think it really shows that people are hungry for great new ideas. They want to see a new vision. They want to see something new and exciting. And there's lots of room. I mean, games is a new medium. There's, there's tons of, of room to explore and to develop and to try things. Um, and this is just kind of like out of nowhere, something kind of random it seems like it's familiar at first and maybe in some ways it is, but it's also kind of brand new in other ways. And it, I mean, absolutely one of the success stories of 2022 for sure. And it just goes to show that if you have a great idea, I mean, you didn't need a billion pixels. You didn't need the cutting edge technology. This looks at a, at a glance to be pretty primitive, uh, but it just, it goes to show that graphics aren't what it's all about. I mean, it's about gameplay. It's about design. It's about that repetitive hook. It's about the flow. I mean, there's so many things that we can iterate on and practice and, and enhance that don't rely on cutting edge graphics or AAA production values. And this is the perfect example, the ultimate example of it, you know? I mean, I can't think of a, a stranger looking throwback than this, and yet I was so glued to it until I hit that 100% mark. So I, I love when people do this. They just come out of nowhere with a vision, with a goal, with a dream, and they make it happen. I mean, I love to see that. It's amazing. 
Right, and that takes us to the last one on this list. As we've said before, um, this is not in any particular order your top five. You're still shuffling it, and you're still putting it together. If people want to hear the, the final list, they can do so on the So Video Games podcast, but... But tell me, what is the last game on your top five? Sucker for Love, First Date. You played it? Absolutely not. I've never even heard of this game. This is the curveball I was waiting for. <laughs> uh, please tell me, what is this one? It is a indie visual novel that takes the Cthulhu mythos and marries it to a dating simulator. Uh, I had the most wonderful time with this game, and I made a special exception. I don't ever play games on PC. But I did make an exception for this one because I was so curious about it. I'm a Cthulhu fan in general, a horror fan in general, uh, in some ways. And I do like uh, dating sims. It's one of the, the genres that I play most often because I think uh, there's just lots of room to grow there. I'm very curious to see what people do. So this was a comedy. It was also a horror game. It was also a Cthulhu game. It's also a dating game. Uh, and it's also a just really well-designed game. Uh, you play as a person who is generally pretty horny, uh, which is, I guess, something you have to accept when you play dating sims. And this person gets a big, like a Necronomicon, a big book of spells, and he summons people to date. So the first person he summons is Lynetta, and she's kind of a like Cthulhu's little sister. Got tentacles uh, for a face and all sorts of black magic. But she's got the cutest voice actor. She's very adorable. And they just kind of like have this repartee back and forth as you progress in the game with the usual like likes and interests as you might expect from a dating game. You also go through the book and you progressively cast darker and darker spells. Um, they incorporate that into the gameplay. So you're in your apartment. You don't ever leave your apartment, but like there's different elements of your apartment that you have to do. You have like a robe and a knife and a mirror. Sometimes blood is involved and things like that. And so you have to follow the instructions in the book and that like unlocks the next section of each date. And so you're talking talking to your date and then you're also considering do you want to cast an expel or don't you how deep down the hole do you want to go how dark do you want things to be and then once you uh, finish the first run uh, there's a second run and if you finish the second run and do a couple secret things there's a third run and each date is just really interesting uh, the voice acting is great it's like top tier voice acting i think it's really well done i think the writing is really funny um, it is sexy without being explicit. This is not an adults only game. It's not a, it's not a triple X game. Um, I think it'd be a perfect candidate for that. If they wanted to go down that route, I'd give them my five bucks, but no, it's, it's pretty clean that way. So anybody can play it. It's just really a good time. It's fun and funny and offbeat and some really bizarre things happen. Some really unexpected things happen. And the way that the three dates intertwine with each other is really brilliant. Um, I had a great time with it. I thought it was, um, another skewing of the dating sim genre. Uh, kind of like the other games that I've mentioned in some of my uh, in the earlier lists here, where I, they take something that you think you know what it is, but then they look at it a different way and change it and and vary things up, and they give you something that is familiar and yet all new. And I feel like Sucker for Love is just one of those like amazing ideas, kind of like Vampire Survivors, kind of like uh, Citizen Sleeper, uh, kind of like uh, Twin Books that we mentioned earlier in the show, where. You think you know what it is, but you don't. And the person giving it to you has a whole new picture in mind. And when you get it, when you see what it is, it's amazing. I feel like it's just really wonderful. It's really cute. And I will say, um, I played through this game, 100% of this game, which is another rare occurrence for me this year. Uh, played it on a PC, but it's also coming to Switch really, really soon. I think either in January or February with some updated content as well. So I'm going to dip back in. And if you haven't played it, that would be a perfect time to check it out. But if you like Cthulhu, if you like horror, if you like dating sims, if you like to laugh, if you're horny... Uh, perfect game for that. And looking at it on the internet right now, it seems like it is a short game. It looks like it's between two and four hours to complete, right? 
It's a really quick play. Yeah, I like that a lot. You might need a wiki for like one part, but in general, it's pretty straightforward. So I think you'll be able to get in there, have your fun, go on those different dates with the different ladies. And it's it just it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's just a marvelous, marvelous little package. I loved it. Well, you've done it again. You've added another one to my backlog. So I've learned about a whole bunch of great games today. So thanks very much for sharing this list with me. Um, I'm excited to actually hear the So Video Games end of year podcast. You will be talking about some of these, of course, but I'm interested to hear where they fall for you. I'm interested to hear where they all slot together and, and what the the really um, the really top, top, top tier games, your absolute favorites of the year were. Um, so you'll be recording a podcast with Carlos, right? For the um, the official So Video Games end of year roundup. Is that is that coming up soon? Yep, we are going to be recording the very next episode. Today is, what is today? Friday. We're going to be recording, uh, I believe, on Sunday. So just two or three days from now, you'll be able to hear our full game of the year episode. It'll be my uh, complete list with a ranked top 10. Uh, it'll be a couple games that we didn't mention here. It'll be my also rands that we didn't cover. And then we'll get Carlos's side of things, his 10 games and all the stuff that he wants to bring to the show too. I have no idea what he's bringing. He has no idea what I'm bringing. So it's going to be a show full of surprises and we may just even surprise ourselves. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm absolutely um, fascinated to find out what Carlos brings to the table too. Um, I do love that you two have such um, divergent tastes and I'm really looking forward to hearing you uh, talks through the games of 2022 so I'll, I'll certainly be tuning into that one um, and thanks for thanks for being on the show Brett oh thank you so much I'm glad to be here I love your show John I mean yours is one of the ones that I listen to regularly uh, I'm a big fan of everything that you do and I love hearing the stuff that you bring as well I mean I know that our taste may not always line up but I feel like there's a lot of crossover I feel like we share a good bit of real estate in our Venn diagram so it's always a pleasure to see what you're thinking of and what you're liking and if I can uh, glean some bits from you I'm definitely going to do that and hopefully uh, people listening um, you know hopefully they've learned about a game they didn't know about hopefully they brought something new to their table as well but uh, I would invite everybody to come listen to So Video Games and I tell all of our listeners to come listen to your show too and I'm just really thrilled to be here it's it's a real pleasure for me to talk to you Likewise, thanks again, Brad. Everyone, do go and check out So Video Games Podcast, one of the best video game podcasts out there. And Happy New Year, Brad. Thanks for thanks for being here. Yeah, you as well. And thanks again for having me. So that was our Games of the Year episode with Brad Galloway. Hope that you enjoyed it. I absolutely loved that chat. Always great to talk games with Brad. I look forward to it every year. And, you know, there are a couple of episodes that you can hear me and Brad talking on. Um, there is one where we did a deep dive into The Longing, the strange sort of existential German walking simulator where you just live for a very long time um, as a strange little underground gnome guy. Um, so if you would like to hear that one, I will leave a link in the show notes. Me and Brad also did a Games of the Year episode last year. I will leave a link to that one as well. And I guessed it once on the So Video Games podcast when Carlos was away on holiday. So I'll put a, a, a note there too. So if this two hours of me talking games with Brad Galloway wasn't enough for you, there are several more hours that you can hear um, if you look in the show description. Um, I have one more Games of the Year episode to come. It will be my final cut version of the Gaming in the Wild Games of the Year. I've got five honorable mentions, I've got 10 through 5, and I've got my top 
five games of 2022. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Still shuffling the order just a little. You heard me talk about some of the contenders today, um, and I'm looking forward to sharing that episode with you soon. So please do stay tuned. Um, if you are a first-time listener or a long-time listener of the show, you enjoyed what you heard today, and if you've been listening to the podcast all year, or if you've just found us, you are welcome to come and support the podcast on Patreon. That's how this whole thing works. Um, I use that money to invest in new equipment for the podcast to make it sound better. I used this year's Patreon money to upgrade my mic, and my, my mixer, my mic stand, all of that stuff, so the podcast is sounding better than ever, thanks to the show's patrons. Um, you can join them at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild.com. And for a dollar a month or more, if you would like, you will get extra episodes occasionally, a couple extra episodes a year. There is eight or nine different episodes that you can get immediately if you become a patron. You also get an invitation to the show's Discord, uh, where you can talk to me and talk to all of the other patrons of the show, share games, share screenshots, play Wordle, recommend sale tips, uh, find new games to play, all of that sort of thing. It's a lovely corner of the internet. So if you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewilds. You can also come and say hello to me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Insta, YouTube, etc. Twitch sometimes um, as Gaming in the Wild. And I really do appreciate anyone that rates the show on Spotify, leaves a review on iTunes, or shares it with a friend. And lastly, I will just say thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you being here. And if you've gotten all the way to the end of this podcast, then well done. Um, I'll be back next week with a new episode. Take care of yourselves and each other. And bye-bye for now.